Hello and welcome to the Cherry STEM show number two. Today we're going to be talking about sex and depression as well as stress. And we have uh, my lovely co-host Richard Wall here with us, as well as our two wonderful guests, James Desbra and Kat Anomia. Um, say hello, peoples. Hello, hello peoples. Hello. <laughs> Only James did it right. All right. <laughs> well, you said my name right. Isn't that such a rare thing? It's it's good. <laughs> well, I, I did some educate. Well, I was educated a bit in in the way of uh, British English uh, pronunciation of Burra, so <laughs> I'm uh, wise up on the, on that. Um, all right. Watch, watch a lot of Doctor Who. A lot of Doctor Who, though. I don't think they ever said Burra, did they? I mean, something uh, happened. I'm sure, they did at some point. Something happened in a Burra. Sure somewhere. I've completely derailed. Come on, come on, on track, focus. Don't even talk to me about Sherlock. Okay, all right. Anyway, you and your Britishness, quit it. All right, so we are talking about gender differences in responses to stress as well as responses to depression and the way depression is internalized or externalized and experienced by uh, men versus women. So basically for the longest time there was this uh, assumption or kind of a one for all carte blanche uh, expectation that whenever people encounter stress, there is or like social stress or any kind of acute stress, the response to that is fight or flight. I mean, you've all heard that many times. Um, and that's been kind of the going model about uh, or on people and like about people's response to stress uh, since the 30s. And thing is, though, uh, that was the assumption for both genders until it was kind of revealed that, well, a lot of the participants that these studies were done on um, in, the, in the 30s by specifically Walter Cannon, who kind of coined this fight or flight and deemed it a universal psychological response, uh, he did most of his studies on men. So from then, uh, and actually 2000 specifically, in the year 2000, um, the year 2000, there was a uh, book written about uh, the called The Tending Instinct. So a lot of research has come between 30s, 1930s and you know 2000 about the differences of male responses uh, to stress and female responses. When they looked at women who were actually responding to stress, uh, they found that a lot of other kind of responses or hormones get released and it's not a fight or flight response but a tend and befriend is what they call it. So they like tend to befriend an enemy basically. And so what that means that physiologically, instead of releasing large amounts of norepinephrine, uh, which is adrenaline, and cortisol, which is a stress hormone, into the bloodstream the way men have it, um, women actually secrete endorphins and oxytocin, which is a bonding hormone and uh, it's also linked to motivation to behave in a friendly manner to your like children or close partners or things like that. So basically we have here these two patterns of behavior. We have the male behavior, because uh, I mean think about humans and human beings and how we've been, you know, how we came to be here today in the civilization. And a lot of our uh, survival instincts and just instincts in general were honed during times that human beings had to hunt for their own food. They had to, you know, create little villages and men and women had slightly different, well, largely different roles uh, based on that kind of setup and men uh, when confronted with stress which you know back in the day used to be primarily an animal or a warring party like a raiding party or having to hunt and encountering a dangerous animal 
Um, so they have a release of adrenaline and uh, cortisol, which increases aggression, but also the adrenaline helps you, you know, move faster and just kind of have a active response to what's happening. Um, while the women uh, were actually left back in like the villages to, you know, weave baskets, tend for children, pick berries, you know, whatever the female role was, and a lot of their uh, sort of behavior had to do with maintaining social order amongst themselves. So it wouldn't really work uh, in a cohesive community, or if you're trying to build a community at all, it wouldn't really work for the people who were left behind to be together all day. Uh, that, that they would be uh, responding to stress or social anxiety through like fighting. That just wouldn't work. So instead, women have this more tend and befriend situation. And to kind of put that into uh, more research or like scientific context, uh, there are experiences with primates, uh, of course, like uh, what are they called? Uh, studies with primates. And uh, that uh, it's kind of universal uh, for rhesus macaques, for instance, if you put two males together that have never met before in a small cage, they will fight and try to kill each other. Uh, but in contrast, if you put two females in a cage, they will reduce the tension and awkwardness of the whole thing by exchanging grooming behavior, which is kind of like you know getting your hair braided, uh, brushed, or getting massage. That sort of grooming uh, behavior that also releases more endorphins and oxytocin. Uh, so they kind of have this feedback loop going of befriending and, and like being calm. Um, and there's also been a lot of interesting Australian studies that uh, suggested that the difference between the men and women and the response to stress may have boiled down to a single gene. So there is the SRY gene that the men have on the Y chromosome, and uh, previously was thought to be uh, related to the development of male genitalia, but uh, because it has to do with testosterone. But they also found that the SRY protein regulates secretion of a lot of different neurotransmitters known as catecholamines. Uh, which includes norepinephrine or adrenaline, dopamine, and serotonin. And they play an important role in neural activity and cardiovascular function and movement. So this gene, the SRY gene, that specifically kind of gives you that fight or flight response uh, is actually present in men. And uh, that gives them, as we see, not only norepinephrine, serotonin, and dopamine, which you will need to have an actively functioning brain, but also have that adrenaline going to physically speed you up. But it also has to do with, as we see, increasing blood pressure, motor activity. So it's very much tied into running, fighting, dealing with an aggressor or an like animal situation. But women do not have an SRY gene. So their response to stress is regulated by a lot of other genes that have to do with like hormones, uh, oxytocin, endorphins. So instead of having that one single fight or flight gene that men have on the Y chromosome, since women don't have a Y chromosome, they don't have that gene. And other genes, multiple genes, are actually involved in regulating all of that uh, kind of behavior when confronted with social stress or otherwise. And um, there are, like people say that men and, different, uh, men and women have different levels of testosterone and Obviously, there's also estrogen and progesterone, so you, you can't just focus on testosterone. Uh, but uh, sometimes um, women have, like, men have testosterone, right? That's like a thing, right? But uh, women sometimes have actually really high testosterone levels as well, and that kind of gives rise to more atyp atypically gendered women. So uh, it has been found that some women have like really high instances of testosterone. It doesn't necessarily make them violent or anything like that, but it does change the way they 
react to situations and they may take a more proactive stance if they're being threatened. Uh, so testosterone does play a role a little bit in that whole fight or flight response to threat situation, but it's not nearly as much as this uh, SRY gene. Now, since we have this little bit of a background, uh, we can move on to the differences uh, in stress uh, between men and women. And so there is kind of a thing that women report being depressed, they report being stressed, uh, while men don't really report uh, any of that information all that much. So um, I'm going to ask you guys to weigh in on any kind of experiences you might have with stress or depression and revealing that to others or keeping it in or what, whatever kind of way you have dealt with letting others know that you might have a need to talk about something or that you need to, you need mental, you know, health, um, help. Anyone, anytime, take it away. Does anyone else want to go first or, or shall I? <laughs> Looks like you nominated yourself. Okay, great. Never volunteer. <laughs> well, that kind of makes the point, doesn't it? It is difficult to bring up this this kind of stuff. I think, for me, um, it was very difficult to go for help because I was denying to myself that I had any sort of depression problem to start with because initially the symptoms were very much like chronic fatigue. Um, so I had all these blood tests and everything, and I refused to accept that it was depression for a very long time, um, just because I didn't want to deal with it. And then when it was, you know, there were there were no other options for what it could be. Uh, basically, it was it was very hard to talk to talk to people or to get any help. You know, I just basically went on the pills and and kept it to myself for a long time. Um, I know that's that's taken as a kind of stereotypically male behaviour, but I look back on it and. I see things in my past that uh, that that led me to keep quiet about it. I mean, I was I was horrifically bullied in both primary school and secondary school, and to show any kind of weakness was to just kind of to to invite being beaten on or or harassed or you know just basically shat on from a great height. So I learned very young, really, to just kind of suppress any sign of weakness, any any sign of emotion as, as much as possible. And that made it very, very hard to go for go for help. Um, and when I did, I mean, it, you do feel better a bit. But I mean, it, you know, I've been in therapy for about two years now, and it still feels weird and um, very unsettling just just to just to open up to the therapist, even though we've got a very good working relationship and everything. Just just exposing that side exposing any kind of any kind of weakness or vulnerability to anybody um, just feels really kind of uh, violating and dangerous um, yeah I get very worked up on the days I've got therapy sessions not wanting to go um, because I, it just makes me that uncomfortable so well that actually brings up um, two interesting kind of offshoots uh, from that um, I'll go over the kind of the quicker one first and then go back to a slightly bigger question. So uh, actually something that Kat linked me earlier today is the uh, there's a study or a new study from uh, Ontario-based researchers found that when you have a walk-in clinic as opposed to a appointment, traditional like therapy appointment uh, scenario, uh, men specifically were uh, much more likely to come into this walk-in therapy clinic uh, rather than having to do with keeping up you know, with appointments. Men traditionally do not really deal with that sort of uh, therapy kind of 
thing very well. Um, there's been obviously a marked difference in the attendance of women in psychology kind of uh, settings and counselorships, but men don't necessarily do that. It's it's difficult, as you mentioned, uh, for a variety of reasons for men to actually live up to a weekly or monthly or whatever meeting situation. Uh, so the walk-in thing, that if you're feeling super stressed and you feel like you can't handle it, you know, you can just walk in whenever and have it dealt with right then, um, they showed a massive increase in uh, men who are coming in to get that sort of help. So they're basically reaching a new demographic of, of basically reaching men by being uh, flexible in their approach and catering the different approaches uh, of mental health to the different genders because there are very big differences between how both genders deal with stress and depression. And I'll get back to that in a moment. But something else you were saying, um, so it seems like because we do have the stigma in uh, not necessarily America per se, but I mean pretty much in the Western world, uh, there is um, a stigma against uh, like saying that you're depressed or that you have a depression. And it used to be a lot worse before the like the age of the internet in the past five years or ten, especially because a lot of prominent um, artists and like actors and people that would normally be seen as idols and looked up to have actually been coming out with their own kind of personal blogging like experiences of hey you guys by the way I'm really fucking depressed and we should have awareness of this thing because a lot of people have it and they don't talk about it so that's actually given a rise to a bit of more of an acceptance of depression as an actual diagnosis as an actual disorder as like a real thing you're not just sad and you need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps but um, there's still kind of, I think, stigma towards men uh, having depression. And it seems like you might have had a little bit of that um, yourself, James, in the denial kind of uh, period. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if that's where it stemmed from, that it's like it's kind of a sign of weakness, as you're saying, to uh, for a man to be depressed. It's like, how can I be incurably sad? That's stupid, right? But at the same time, we also have uh, what you were saying about um, being afraid to open up about your particularities and therefore invite criticism and possibly endanger yourself in terms of legal action or who knows like there, there's been a lot of really crazy stuff happening to people uh, because somebody didn't like what they said uh, of course there's uh, the, the privilege of counselor and, and client but um, you know is that is that sort of kind of like the fear you were talking about some some incriminating information or did it have to do more with just opening up and being vulnerable and that just feeling too foreign based on you being male and having experiences with bullying it's it's mostly the bullying thing i mean you you said a lot there <laughs> uh, the drop in clinics thing makes a lot of sense to me for a variety of reasons i think maybe guys are just more likely to go for help at the point where they need it and if you've got to wait for an appointment, that, that moment might pass and then you feel uncomfortable again or you feel like you've dealt with it when you haven't really. Um, I also think men will tend to prioritize things like work and so on, and so it's less easy to meet appointments, which are very often daytime appointments. Um, the celebrities coming out, that's definitely something that was a huge aid to me. I mean, Stephen Fry did a great series of programs about his manic depression. Um, and as someone I've, I've admired as an intellectual and a, and a comedian and everything else, that was that was good for me to to hear things coming out of his very very articulate mouth uh, describing the same kind of things I'd gone through. Stigma, um, yes, but for me the stigma was uh, it's such a stereotypical thing for someone who works in a creative industry 
uh, and you know I was I was a goth in my teens and twenties as well. So you know it was such a stereotypical thing. It just kind of felt hackneyed. Oh, you know the the depressed artist, the depressed writer. Well, is me. It just uh, felt so contrived, <laughs> almost like like it couldn't be real. Um, I still I have trouble. Mechanism to that though. Uh, there's something that that I was going to start getting into is is, is uh, how the sexual dimorphism, the, the way that stress uh, tends to drive uh, male brains more towards the feminine spectrum in certain things. But uh, I'm sorry, go go ahead. Oh, no, 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 that's a good point. Um, I'm not a very conventional sort of male stereotype in a lot in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I do intellectual artsy stuff, I'm not very hands-on, not very practical, but one way I've always felt that I could be manly was to be very, very stoic, to just kind of take everything the world threw at me and so on. And so that was, of course, the approach I took with depression was, you know, I'll just kind of ignore it and cope and deal with it and not make a fuss about it and, and it'll go away, but it got to be too much, you know, that, that approach no longer worked, but I was so wedded to that as a, as a concept and as a as a male identity um that, that was very hard to get around um and the other thing was i this still worries me now and even even though i'm quite out and open about um about having depression as i really don't like being patronized i don't want to be treated any differently because i've got this this uh this this problem um and that's something i worry about constantly is you know are people Pussyfooting around or not being straight with me or or something because they're because they're worried, you know. Yeah, and, and um, I don't mean to interrupt here or anything, but I've actually. Uh, it's no, I'm, 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 it's, I'm done. Go ahead. Oh well, it's, it's something that I'm not particularly. Uh, I still have a hard time even talking about that I've ever had uh, depression or anything like that. Where, where as I have, uh, and uh, and so it's one of those things. Yeah, I, I completely understand. It's one of those. That's one of the biggest problems that you have is it's a matter of respect because there are certain things that uh, you just. You know, you you you. If you have any sort of weakness at all whatsoever, then you're suddenly no longer a man. You know, and so it's like you're. It, it there's this. Uh, it's indescribable. That's a, there's no way to really uh, relate to people how if you've got something, uh, you know, some illness of any kind or anything like that. How you just you can't really you can't really talk about it. There's just, there's so many roadblocks in the way. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. You don't want somebody to be pussyfooting around because once again, that's a, that's a matter of respect. It's like, no, you, you know, that's, that's one of your biggest problems in, uh, you know, being able to admit some sort of difficulties is that, you know, you still want to maintain a level of respect. And that's kind of why part of why men will not really ask for, for help because, uh, you know, then, then, one, then somehow, if you if you are not if you're not first or last, you know, it's kind of that's 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 the kind of way. That's not necessarily a thing that men hold themselves, but that's kind of what society holds you to. Um, where if you if you have the slightest weakness, if you're anything other than some mythical, uh, you know, godlike uh, impervious thing, then you're completely worthless. You know, it's, it's the, the 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 way in which people tend to to go from one end of the spectrum all the way to the other is is it's just absurd and it's uh, I don't know I think maybe it has something to do with uh, our uh, our primate beginnings you know where, where they you know they try to categorize into a simple you know binary or something but uh, but you know back on on the idea of a binary one of, one of the things I mentioned earlier was the um, uh, there's a study here I guess I could uh, I don't know how to how to link it in, in the um, 
uh, chat or whatever. But uh, one of the things that happens is okay. Okay, so we're talking about sexually dimorphic um, uh, things in the, in the brain specifically. There's something called the medial preoptic area in the uh, the hypoth- hypothalamus, which is um, is also uh, often referred to as a sexually dim- dimorphic area. It's like like one of the most uh, obviously sexually dimorphic areas because it specifically uh, has to do with sex behaviors. And uh, some of the things that happen is uh, under social defeat stress. Um, that's uh, basically, in other words, anybody who's been you know bullied and things of that nature, there will actually be changes to that area of the brain and the way in which. Um, that area of the brain expresses uh, it, it. It actually can change uh, mounting behaviors in mice, whether they whether they uh, you know uh, either present you know in other words, they, like a uh, if you if you hit that area with different chemicals, you can make a male mouse present to be mounted or a female mouse uh, mount. Uh, and so there's uh, there's interesting um, interactions here between <clears throat> excuse me social defeat stress and uh, alterations of the um, uh, the medial preoptic area and it, it's uh, it's something that I'm, I'm hoping that we'll uh, we'll kind of do a um, a follow-up on when, I, when I've had more time to uh, to really like kind of digest some of the, the different studies and uh, and collect something uh, but I think we're, we're trying to be a little more on the um, you know sociology aspect of it today a little bit yes uh, going back to kind of uh, the stress uh, part of uh, the whole stress and depression conversation because stress is kind of a small minute depressive episode it kind of results in in, you know like acute uh, perhaps depression like a day or a week or whatever and then there's of course chronic depression which is uh, something that results from perhaps stress um, as for instance James case and in many other cases and there is uh, speaking of stress there is indeed an gender dimorphism one of the other areas that uh, responds differently based on being in a male or a female brain is actually the amygdala which is a little almond sized uh, structure that is buried um, in the brain uh, it's sort of like behind the ears uh, ish area and uh, it has to do with fear and social learning and in fact children who have been um, abused uh, or people undergoing really traumatic uh, kind of situations they end up uh, having a lot of, of particular receptor on that amygdala and uh, the responses uh, of amygdala activation uh, vary between men and women so that would be something else to add to our follow-up um, on the you know for people who want to get more technical I mean this is cherry stem uh, stem meaning science technology uh, engineering and mathematics probably not gonna have that much mathematics <laughs> and, and, uh, but maybe we'll have a phys- physics talk one day I don't know uh, but I'm kind of you know still testing the ground this is our second show and um, I'm not exactly sure of our readership's level of knowledge and or interest in extremely technical details it's a passion of ours personally, uh, but it's not necessarily something that uh, people will be super responsive to. So this is kind of like a testing the waters uh, episode, and I would love to get into more details about uh, the specific brain structures that are different between men and women. So for you STEM lords out there who want to hear that sort of stuff, uh, leave comments uh, after this hangout's over in like a little YouTube video comment, and let us know if you want us to do a more in-depth uh, kind of episode or if you'd really prefer we keep it slightly more like in layman's terms or understandable uh, for the more casual peruser of science but um, 
going back to slightly more uh, casual science, uh, speaking of stress uh, and male and female reporting of it, um, as we you know mentioned, men don't necessarily report uh, being stressed or especially being depressed. And uh, women are more likely, uh, of course, than men um, to report having a great deal of stress. Uh, almost half of the women uh, in a lot of the studies that were done said that uh, their stress increased over the past five years. And I'm pretty sure the study that looked over all the stuff was done in 2010. So um, I guess since 2005, <laughs> uh, the stress level has risen uh, greatly uh, for women. Almost half of all women surveyed say, uh, said their stress increased over the past five years uh, compared to just 39% uh, of men. So both men and women apparently noticed some, some stressors happening in the past five years or 10 years. Um, now, women are more likely to report that money uh, and the econo uh, economic kind of status of the economy are their sources of their stress, uh, while men are more likely to cite that work is a cause of their stress. And I think a lot of that goes back to what you guys are talking about and what Richard was saying specifically about respect. Uh, there is this kind of element of being treated respectfully and not uh, being basically stressed by an alpha male uh, subduing all the males around him into you know omega status, which is actually they've they've noticed in animal studies that the stress level and the cortisol level, which is a stress hormone, in uh, subordinate males is their and their testosterone is like gone. They have no testosterone. <laughs> the the kind of bullying or the uh, the lack of respect that is given in these uh, really badly formed hierarchies that we frequently see in, in workplaces is actually something that gives men a great deal of stress. Uh, so that's actually an interesting clue as to how we can improve uh, perhaps male experience and, and just kind of give them the courtesy of respect. Like we, we have these jokes that, oh, men just have a big ego. You got to, you know, flatter their ego. That's how you're going to get whatever you want, just cater to their to his ego, laugh at his jokes. Well, you know, um, first of all, what's wrong with being, you know, nice to people? Uh, of course, obviously, in this situation, it's about uh, conning someone uh, and kind of deceiving them that you're actually with them when you're not. But in in theory, this kind of idea of giving men respect, uh, I just out of courtesy for no, even if they didn't necessarily quote unquote deserve it, but having this modicum of civility and treating a human being like he's not garbage, which we usually see a lot of uh, with men, especially recently with the manspreading and the like other, like you wore the wrong shirt, you did this wrong, you did that wrong. Men are walking on eggshells, not just at work, not just around their bosses, not just around their wives, if that's one of those situations, but they're basically walking on eggshells in public, in buses, public transportation, and everywhere they are, there is a stress level that has been increased for men in general. And uh, I think just a little bit of respect, a little bit is uh, going to go a long way. And um, that's actually, in my opinion, one of the new things that is coming out <laughs> is that men have feelings too. Men have emotions and they like can get hurt. And just because the guy doesn't instantly burst out into tears or have some sort of uh, you know emotional reaction to it or tells you about it doesn't mean he's not experiencing it. Uh, a lot of times uh, he will either be in denial or he will not be aware of what is bothering him. But stress has very definite effects on the brain and it leads to depression. Uh, now, I kind of would like to talk about um, a little bit of uh, the female sort of side of things. 
where we have really a lot of attention given to women who are suffering, women who have depression, women who might, well, maybe not specifically depression, but like it's a lot more acceptable, I feel like. I mean, I could be wrong, correct me if you think I am, uh, but it does seem more acceptable in our society to have a approach towards women that's a little more lenient, that has a little bit of a, gives them a bit of a break when it comes to uh, experiencing emotional hardship. Now, I'm not talking about women who are in, in power positions where, you know, they have to maintain the same kind of no weaknesses uh, approach that a lot, a lot of men have to do all the time. There are some women in certain positions at work where, you know, they can't really tell people that they have depression because they will be seen as more weak and lose some of their, you know, earned positions. Uh, but overall, though, uh, when it comes to just your every day on the street, your, your mother, your sister, anyone, um, it feels like there's a lot of compassion for women when it comes to ha uh, suffering or just even having a bad day or not feeling too good about yourself with whole body positivity just a lot of sort of effort um, and traditionally basically women pay salaries of a lot of counselors and psychologists so there is a industry of promoting and uh, kind of maintaining a female client base and also promoting women feeling these ways and coming back to to um, therapy and all that um, so I might say that there is an over-medication or an over, um, like, too much attention being given uh, to women's issues to, to the point where it becomes detrimental, to the point where you're trying to find any little tiny thing that somebody, you know, might possibly be upset about and just kind of harping on it and ruminating on it. That's one of the things that is found, uh, the difference between the way men and women deal with stress is that men externalize. Uh, meaning that they're a lot more likely to be aggressive uh, and like angry, burst out in anger or punch things, so be violent um, type of kind of externalization. So you take your feelings on the inside and you kind of put them on the outside in a certain of uh, manner of trying to get something from the outside world to, to make you feel better, and they also go to drugs, uh, alcohol specifically. So uh, kind of aggression and alcohol are the two ways in which men uh, deal with or externalize uh, their stress and depression. Uh, being aggressive, impulsive, things like that. Um, research has shown that. While uh, women uh, tend to internalize a lot of their issues and it kind of becomes an echo chamber and a, they ruminate uh, on issues and they uh, have a lot of emotions about them. They develop other disorders sometimes like um, you know, eating disorders, panic disorder, anxiety disorder. Uh, women report having those a lot more uh, who also have depression, uh, while men tend to just be more into social and, you know, have alcohol dependence, and those are just kind of their ways of dealing with it. Uh, so basically you're saying they're going to extremes in both cases, whereas uh, where, you know, perhaps uh, men could use a little more softness, perhaps sometimes women could use a little more of the, uh, the hey, you know, you can do it kind of thing. Uh, so it, because men are always is, you know, it's like you gotta, you gotta go out, you gotta toughen up, you gotta cowboy up, you gotta, you know, and, and there's no, there's no, you know, and th there's no softness saying, yeah, hey, it's okay, you need to, you know, uh, chill out, it's and and you know, deal with this. Whereas with uh, with women, perhaps it's exactly the opposite. But one thing, one of the things I think that you you brought up earlier, that I was gonna say, is that uh, it's kind of like the difference between. Um, a, a, if, it, if a child has a weakness, 
uh, it, it's not seen as a uh, like if 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 a child cries, for instance, it's not their job, uh, you know, uh, to be strong. And so it's the same thing I think with why it's okay for women to show that kind of uh, softness or weakness is because it's seen it's like it's not their job, and so it's completely okay. It's not really seen as a fault at all. Whereas with men, it's their job to be strong, and so therefore this is a failure of their the very essence of their character if they're not this strong thing. But uh, I think. Uh, both James and Cat wanted to speak. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, there might be the temptation in men to externalize our suffering, but a lot of the things that you mentioned, Anna, like the alcoholism and, and so on, these are ways to, to keep a lid on that and to turn that into something more internal, you know, to shy away from public interactions because you don't want to blow up, you don't want to bother anyone, you don't want to hurt anyone. And I think that kind of pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down, is maybe a factor that leads to this this higher male suicide rate um, because that's kind of the ultimate internalization of, of harm, just you know, destroying yourself. Well, that is the curious thing, that uh, a lot more women report being depressed and yet more men commit suicide. So I think that really goes back to the rumination uh, and kind of echo chambering uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but having a feedback loop, a, a downward spiral of a negative feedback loop of depression and anxiety and, you know, the panic eating disorders, et cetera, and specific phobias too. Women develop specific phobias as a result of their um, depression, while men uh, actually go out and do something about it, whether it be punch something or uh, drink or just kill yourself. That's uh, one of those things that uh, men seem to... It, it just fits with the externalization or internalization situation. Uh, now, I was kind of go going into something there earlier where um, we were mentioning that there's kind of a cottage industry built around uh, treating female uh, illnesses. And um, I feel like that it may be dangerous at this point where we are kind of trying to find uh, an issue that may not be there or we're trying to cure someone of 10 different things that we think they have uh, because they're a woman and it's like well women are susceptible to the stuff and women report I, mean, I would say that women are more in touch with their feelings in the sense of they can put words to their feelings uh, or kind of like find specific things that make them sad about uh, that yeah that are, they are sad about and they can just kind of can come up with a laundry list of things that don't really sit all that well with them. And I mean, that ultimately, basically, uh, I would like to just interject real quick, I'm going to interrupt myself here, and uh, mention that men uh, have this kind of approach of uh, one or, or nothing. This is like, I mean in terms of, okay, I'm speaking metaphorically, but also more generally, and this is in terms of general behaviors of men and women in satisfaction, uh, in terms of uh, picking something out at a store, uh, choosing a color for something, making a decision on anything, uh, there is a level of satisfaction that men reach. They look, like, let's say they have 10 things in front of them, and they have to pick the best one, uh, 10 apples, like, I guess apples is a bad choice, but basically it would be like bison or mammoth or like whatever the fuck man hunted that would be in herds. And so men would come up on this and be like, we have to find the one that suits our needs best. Look for the baby, look for the lame one, look for the closest one, find it, that one, go. So they have this one track sort of pick the thing, stick with the thing, love the thing, it's great uh, attitude that 
is you know, part of was part of survival. Uh, while women had the uh, role of picking berries, doing more like uh, gathering, while men did the hunting, the women did the gathering. And uh, color of fruit and berries is a really important indicator of their ripeness, of their potential le lethality. I don't know if that's even a word. I just made it up. Uh, but you kind of had to have these built-in layers of dissatisfaction, so to speak, uh, that would provide a, a better a survival mechanism when it came to the women's role. So I think that kind of leads into our, our modern day because we still have all these instincts. We still have all these ways of dealing with the world, um, but we have a new civilization city setting around us. So I think what happens is um, men might pick one thing that they say, oh, I'm just... I don't know, stress today, or it's just this thing at, at work, or it's just this other thing, instead of like looking deeper and looking more into what it is that is happening with them. They're just kind of, that's not what men do. They don't sit and think about their feelings. They have to go out and do stuff, uh, and they have to pick that one thing and go with it, while women uh, have this kind of layers of way they could look back into their past and into their life, and they could pick a lot of things that weren't exactly right, that weren't exactly perfect, that were just a few shades off from the ideal feeling or the ideal experience. And so because of that, there can be uh, a lot, and I'm not saying they're lying or they're, you know, exaggerating or whatever. These are just the way female brains think. And they see all these layers of stuff that is like, oh no, I'm, like I have all these reasons. And so they will talk about and report you know, 10, 20 different things that are wrong with them uh, because of this process of going and looking over stuff and basically being slightly dissatisfied based on like the ideal experience that they would have. And so because of not really understanding that that is part of the way female brains work and that a balance to a hyper-feminized brain is to actually have an element in your head that says, okay, now let's pick some things and stick with them and let's pick a level of satisfaction and stick with that and let's throw away things that are just not really, they don't really matter and focus on the things that are actually contributing to my issue. And because we don't really know how to do that yet uh, for women and women themselves don't necessarily, you know, people aren't, they're, they're not born neuroscientists, they don't know this stuff. Uh, so. I think because women have a tendency to report a lot of things that you know they can search out in themselves, because of that there is a prevalence of treating women for 10,000 different things that they may not even have based on one word that they said and the therapist was like, oh great, let me give you more drugs. Uh, so that actually brings us to uh, Kat's experience and uh, if you'd like to take us away with that, that would, that would be great. Yeah, so I have two sort of thoughts that I want to go over. Um, the first being that I have never felt stigmatized or uncomfortable for talking about my mental illness experience. Um, granted, I don't want to share my vulnerabilities with people when I'm in, when I'm currently having an episode or a panic attack or anything like that. I don't want anyone to see me or view me as weak. But in terms of saying, "Hey, guess what? I have this problem," I have never had an issue with that outside of my own parents who. My stepfather just didn't believe me, and my mother has a traditionally masculine way of processing emotions, and so she wasn't able to understand mine. Um, outside of that, I've been met overwhelmingly with compassion and just general positivity and understanding, and so I'm very grateful for that. 
um, it was very easy for me in the past to have my mother call my boss and say, hey, my daughter's having a panic attack and won't be at work today, and I could go back to work and nobody would look at me different. So there's that. That goes with what both of you were sharing about your experiences and how you did not have that privilege. Um, the second thing is that I have been overwhelmingly diagnosed with a tons and tons and tons of different things that and I feel like that's extremely unhealthy I've been diagnosed with PTSD OCD agoraphobia acute anxiety disorder bipolar disorder at one point I was told I had depression which being treated for that was terrible and super inaccurate and just having all of these labels thrown at my face it a did not help my problem did not help me understand my problem and B, it just it made me feel like I was more and more of a broken human being. And it was unhealthy and dehumanizing and demeaning and not helpful at all. And that's that cottage industry that she was talking about where basically it, it becomes a kind of a feedback loop where they, they tell you you're broken and so you become more broken instead of telling you, hey, yeah, there's a couple little things, but yeah, you're going to be fine. You know, there, there's some there's something to that that, uh, that I've, I've like kind of experienced – I think that 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 that's kind of a male way of of dealing with. That's how we deal with our own problems. It's like, yeah, there's a couple of problems, but it's gonna be fine. You know, even if it's like a you know a bullet wound, ah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes that gets you, even if it's not really accurate, it's not really true. That positivity about that it's gonna be work out tends to be kind of self fulfilling. And so perhaps that's uh you know something that that Cherry was trying to get at that you know that where they they start to tell you all these things that are wrong with you, and they think that that's helping, whereas it may actually be hurting. Right. There have been numerous studies that show that the more you place a label on someone, the more that person conforms to that label. They did. Uh, I just was just reading up on some of that uh, for not just specifically labels, and I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, nothing is more limiting than self-limiting beliefs uh, or be beliefs that others or hold that limit you in terms of you can only be this, you can only be that. Uh, so that is definitely rings true from my personal experience. But there's also uh, in the recent Scientific American Mind uh, article, they had a little blurb about people putting on suits, uh, for instance, versus regular clothes, and they had uh, a greater response um, from others trying to negotiate with them when they wore a suit, and their testosterone levels, for instance, were really low when men dressed down into sweats. Uh, so what you wear and how you perceive yourself uh, so also matters to, along with those labels. And the same was for a uh, doctor's coat, uh, people who wore a doctor's coat uh, versus people who were told it's a painter's coat or people who just looked at a coat hanging on the wall that was they were told it's a doctor's coat. The ones who were actually wearing it uh, were greatly, had great improvements on their decision-making and like kind of... Um, attention, focus, uh, basically a lot of cognitive metrics that they used. People actually performed uh, better when they were wearing a doctor's coat, uh, perhaps 50% better uh, behavior when they felt like they were a doctor in a doctor's coat. Now, they didn't even feel like they were a doctor. They were just wearing a doctor's coat. And I guess wearing that label, wearing that uh, social sign to others that says, I am a doctor, um, 
improve their own understandings about themselves. And we also saw this with uh, girls who were told that they can't do good at math because that's one of those the traditional things. It was like, oh, girls are bad at math, guys are bad at whatever. And uh, a lot of those dynamics have been switching and changing, and there are gender atypical girls that you know nobody cared about. And uh, when we're telling girls now, it's like, hey, you can do math, like you'll be fine at it. They actually do improve just from the belief of themselves or other people around them that they can do it. And yes, there's definitely uh, a cottage industry in, in a way. Um, that's exactly what I was uh, trying to describe. And uh, as some people pointed out in chat, uh, that there is a kind of a what's called beauty salon uh, uh, for women, a uh, cognitive beauty salon. That's what therapy is. It's it's kind of a cognitive uh, beauty parlor where you come in and you choose which you know makeup you want, what hairstyle you want, what nails and uh, you know they kind of come in and pick and choose from the different disorders they might possibly have or what the doctors you know read into them having since uh, a lot of the therapy is mediated by psychiatry that deals with they're basically licensed drug dealers they give people drugs there's been more deaths from prescription drugs in America than I think from like most hard drugs at this point so it's kind of a literal industry as well as a, uh, a niche market uh, and that caters to women in that sense. Um, but, you know, to kind of go back to um, the differences between uh, men and women in terms of stress and their reactions in depression and things like that, um, a lot of, I mean, there, there's a lot that is not understood or that is not put into practice uh, since Therapy places are notoriously, you know, catered towards women to the point where uh, Tom Golden, one of our, uh, you know, friend of the show, he is a male-only uh, counselor uh, and uh, a therapist, and those are, uh, he's like the only one practically in the United States. There is a market lack of representation for male-only uh, therapists, and I've feel like, you know, segregation is never a good thing, but I think in some things, uh, segregation between the genders specifically is important when we're talking about very few specific things, such as, uh, well, therapy, for instance, because men and women have utterly different ways of processing and grieving and dealing with anger and dealing with sadness. They have vastly different ways of approaching that, so I would be in favor of advocating male-only and female-only <laughs> therapists instead of having kind of a a mix and just you know a mixed bag for everyone it's kind of when you're jack of all trades you're a master of none so I don't think it fits men or women all that well uh, because of this new kind of monster that we've created and uh, based on that uh, or going back to like my original point um, we noticed that men uh, when they're stressed out and uh, you know a lot of people jump to conclusions that it's like oh testosterone's bad toxic masculinity all this stuff is terrible and a lot of that is basically a lot of our uh, instincts and brain activations that are still left over from just the way human beings happen to be. And men and women, because of the fight and flight or tenant befriend, they legitimately have different coping strategies and different approaches to things. And so we should not unfairly label men as being X or Y uh, when a lot of it they, they just has to do with their biology. So for instance, um, you know, stressed out people uh, in, the, in the study, uh, you had stressed out people that were men and women, and they gave them, you know, a basic ice water uh, dunking, you know, increase their cortisol levels, just a very simple uh, acute stress situation. And uh, they did brain uh, functioning uh, imaging and uh, things like that, and so when they were shown 
angry or neutral faces, so these stressed out people, when they were shown angry or neutral faces, uh, men specifically had a decrease of activity in the fusiform facial area, which helps with facial recognition. And by contrast, uh, frazzled or stressed women uh, more, were seen to be more attuned, so they had greater activation in the fusiform uh, facial area, so they were more attuned to recognizing facial expressions. So for instance, that's such a simple little thing, but it really goes back to tend and befriend uh, or fight or flight situation when you're dealing with acute stress, which our bodies, I mean, we have adrenaline, we have cortisol, we have all the hormones and, and catecholamines, you know, dumping themselves into our body uh, uh, because it's kind of a primal response. We, we're still human animals. There, we were still, you know, you can't really, just because we have civilization and culture and, uh, you know, think of God and where do we where do we come from and all this magical mystical stuff we are still kind of this soul being whatever riding an animal uh, we have these instincts that we can't help they overwhelm the rational mind frequently so we have men that uh, dealing with stress acute stress basically confrontation or you know a fight or whatever it was that they had to deal with back in the day <laughs> meaning you know prehistoric times they don't have the luxury of looking at the person's face that they're battling with and to try to figure out what they're feeling, how they're thinking. They they really can't have they, they can't afford the luxury of dealing with another person's emotions and that possibly throwing them off when they're in a life or death situation. While women, since they have a tend and befriend uh, approach, they are more attuned to facial expressions so that they can more uh, they can better manipulate, that they can better cater to whatever the emotion or feeling of their adversary is. And that not only works with between female, uh, female to female relations, but I think one of the big reasons for tend and befriend uh, behavior, or at least uh, from what we historically were told about, you know, like raiding parties and uh, even before the Vikings, there were, you know, uh, villages would raid each other, uh, kill all the men and then probably kill the children too, but also rape and take the women for their own. Uh, so I think a lot of that tend and befriend actually has to do with dealing with some of those situations too, where you're basically having to face everybody you know dying, everything is terrible, Some you know somebody's taking you away, you don't know where, and you're going to have to live in that new area with that new person, with that, you know, your, your captor or whatever. And so it wouldn't really be useful or uh, even survivable to have you know an attitude when you uh, are taken as a captive uh, it makes a lot more sense for the body to induce endorphins and oxytocin and to have a bonding moment with your new person that you're with now uh, in fact that's uh, one of the things that um, is kind of a cheat a life hack uh, when you go on dates uh, when you go on your first date um, you know you might want to take a girl to a scary movie or a uh, amusement park because that little bit of adrenaline that we you know discussed actually increases oxytocin and um, endorphins so not only are they going to have a greater time but you're also going to have a better bonded sort of situation later on if you um, engage in, you know, kind of activities together that release endorphins. Now, going from stress to, to depression, um, I, unless you guys want to interject something in there anywhere, um, anything that I said, if, you, if it hits off something? I was just going to say, I was on one of the um, shows with Tom, 
and he's a yeah he's a great guy with a lot of good good insights. I was lucky enough to get a get a therapist who, while they're not male exclusive, they uh, they specialise in men. But um, that I had to go private for that. Um, in my country, yeah, even though we've got socialised healthcare, getting any kind of mental health help at all in the UK is, is very difficult. It takes a very long time, and it's a kind of standardised set of help. You know, all you can really get is cognitive behaviour therapy. Um, which you know has a few useful tools, but a lot of it is is just basically talk therapy, which I think is less less helpful for men. One of the things Tom was talking about echoed back to what you were saying earlier about uh, men get a lot of benefit from being shown respect more than necessarily from being shown sympathy. I think that's true, and I think we definitely do need to have at least multiple approaches to mental health whether it's whether it's gendered or uh, gendered or not cuz there's always going to be outlying cases um we just need need more ways of going about it than than the ones that are available yeah absolutely all right uh now it, i'm echoing sorry okay thank you <laughs> um they're going to basically we're kind of leading into uh, psychiatry uh, and therapy using medications uh, a little bit and things like that. Uh, as you did mention, uh, I'm not sure what the other part of the uh, cognitive behavior. I, I guess you mentioned respect, James. But I was just wondering what you think would be a good addition to just uh, cognitive behavior therapy because I do have this attitude as well. That's one of the reasons why I have a neuropsychology major or degree, whatever, is uh, I went into college to study psychology. And my first two years, it was great. Psychology, cognitive, this and that. And then I got really interested in cognitive psych and took a lot of those classes. And then I realized neuroscience is a thing. And it's like a big thing that determines a lot of the ways in which psychology manifests itself. So I had to, I had to switch. I was like, you can't. You can't be a therapist, which is kind of my goal of uh, why I went into college for, for that particular degree. Uh, and I felt like you couldn't be a therapist uh, rightfully or, or help people in the right way without knowing neuroscience, without having an understanding of nutrition and how that affects the different brain areas, like what the brain needs. As my counselor, uh, my college counselor and, and professor, one of uh, her sign-off on an email is uh, the mind is what the brain does. And that's exactly what it is. Uh, the brain is the actual thing that is also affected by uh, nutrition, by like different hormone imbalances, by a variety of things that you can't just do cognitive behavior therapy. You have to also deal with potential structural damage or improper balances of chemicals and things like that. And that's where, unfortunately, psychiatry comes in. Uh, and I say unfortunately because uh, psychiatry has a, a really bad track record, especially with antidepressants. And... Uh, the effects of which uh, we know we have so many so many bad side effects but I mean it's as simple as SSRIs which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and the most common antidepressant <laughs> pills currently the science community doesn't know how they work they know it works for some people sometimes to make them less sad uh, but it also makes a lot of people kill themselves and it has some to do with serotonin and serotonin seems to be a problem in people who are depressed, so just give them SSRIs. I mean, let's see what happens. Uh, there, there really is no quantifiable method, at least last I checked, which you know was a few years ago, uh, but there was really no specific mechanism that science knows for how SSRIs work. 
They just know they sometimes do. And but as I mentioned, they also sometimes lead to suicides. And in overall, in general, it's in my opinion not the right approach to treating anything if you deal with just medicine or if you deal with just cognitive behavior therapy you have to have a mix of approaches and you have to understand the brain before you give it things and, and it's, it's funny it's just that it's uh, it's it's very a very uh, male versus female you know kind of broad versus narrow perspective on on how the uh, the drugs are you know there there is a, a known mechanism it's just too finite it's too tiny to, they know exactly that it you know it blocks the reuptake of that particular you know but how uh, does that <laughs> but help they, but they don't know the broad scale larger perspective mechanism and uh, and so it's it, it's kind of funny because that that's one of the things I was going to say that, that seems to be very uh, different between the that male and female um, uh, brain types and the sexual dimorphism has to do with you know if you if you want to be more adaptive and more broad uh, have more broad perspective well then you might also end up with analysis paralysis where you have you're looking at too many things at once you do too broad or but when you're narrow and you're trying to focus on one thing you know get, pick something do something about it well then you also become kind of one track mind you know get doing that one specific thing and you can't see the forest for the trees uh, and you focus on with these tiny things but uh, I, I have a whole larger theory of you know the 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 spectrum between the the, the extremely male versus the extremely female uh, mind but uh, but James was wanting to uh, speak about uh, some drug stories that he does well I can lead into that actually in a little bit um, I am really curious to hear about the the male and female because we, we've mentioned this a few times uh, in the this kind of a general approach uh, or rather a way of viewing large groups of people uh, people in like all the people in general people in specific fields uh, these differing groups that and even okay different groups that seem to have a more male leaning uh, pattern of thinking or a more female leaning pattern of thinking we're not even talking about just specific individuals that may be gender atypical uh, and uh, things like that but we're talking about a big larger sort of a mimetic like a, a meta level of uh, Stop. I, I really want to hear what you have to say about that. All right. Well, let's let's let uh, James speak about his, uh, his his drug story real quick. I, I definitely, it's a, it's a long topic. I can I can get into. Okay. Perfect. Let me uh, segue then into. Um, I wanted to say a brief thing about uh, antidepressants and and all that, and then then we'll I guess get back to that. Uh, but there is actually differences in the way men and women uh, metabolize antidepressants. So based on the individual, once again, we can't paint men and women when it comes to mental health with such a broad brush as to give them the same stuff. That, that's one of my problems with the education system too. Uh, we teach boys and girls uh, in the same room in the same way and boys and girls don't necessarily learn or m more masculine minded or more feminine minded because they don't always match with what's between the legs. Uh, those individuals, they, they can't necessarily learn uh, in a way, like female brains process things differently than male brains. And this is, it goes beyond, uh, you know, just what's a boy or a girl on the outside. There were uh, studies done with fMRIs that showed that gay women, uh, act, their brains activated a lot more like men and that gay men had their brain activate a lot more like women. So we are legitimately talking about female or male brains regardless of what body they're in. And 
those bodies, though, I mean, a lot of times uh, when you have a less testosterone male, for instance, or more testosterone female, there are also going to be muscle changes, body size changes. There's going to be minute difference. Well, not minute, maybe, but pretty major sometimes, or sometimes minute, but there are going to be differences in the way the body metabolizes things, in the way it's shaped, how big it is, how, many, how much muscle versus fatty tissue there is. And a lot of that actually relates back to testosterone and things like that. So when we look at antidepressants and we give everybody just a, a fuck ton of SSRIs or, you know, barbiturates or whatever they're using nowadays or we're using, here, take all the stuff uh, except men metabolize things differently than women. So their drug absorption rates are actually different. And I don't think any of that is looked at anywhere because there is an approach to discussing any kind of gender dimorphism or difference between the sexes, that has been such a taboo subject for the longest time. Thank God for neuroscience. In the past 10-15 years, with neuroscience really becoming a big thing, uh, with their neuroscience departments being created in colleges, there's a lot more sophisticated research that can be done because of our technology, and that actually finally broke that dam of being able to talk about the differences between men and women and not just in their behavior but specifically in their brains and there's always kind of an association with that that there's something wrong with saying that there are differences between people it just think because things are different doesn't mean that they're less I, that's if I can impart one thing on people you know this would be it that everybody has advantages and disadvantages absolutely everybody and you can ma male brains have disadvantages and advantages and female brains have disadvantages and advantages and they work best in harmony or when you have a brain which most of us do uh, you would want to have it balanced uh, a little more towards the middle not be hyper feminine or hyper masculine because both of those can lead to toxicity on on both of those you know, it comes down to like there's there's a whenever you have a specialization you tend to lose generalization and so there is a you know you 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 can't have everything all at once you can't have up and down simultaneously so when you specialize you you automatically have weaknesses and if you're completely general then you also have the weakness of not having a specialty so there's just it's this this understanding that there is always a trade-off that there is always so anytime the that somebody has some strength, it also means that they have some weakness. But a lot of times, it's it's the other way around as well. It's like, but sometimes people will focus on the strength and not see the weakness, or they'll focus on the weakness and not see the strength. Like even even depression itself shows uh, that there there's there's some reason why we become depressed after we have uh, traumatic events, and it has to do with being able to adapt to circumstances better. We have to be able to look at our circumstances from a broad perspective we're not necessarily picking one thing out and so I think specifically with men that, that having basically a mind that is that is looking at a lot more different little things at once uh, and is less you know one track allows a, a kind of adaptive uh, you know reintegration of all the information around you and say okay now you know the, the village is burnt down all my allies are dead uh, what do I do now I gotta look at all the circumstances and, and figure it out from here you know uh, it's a. I think it is. The depression itself is an, an is an adaptation. It doesn't just. You know. I don't think it's just a, a complete failure of the system, because uh, it is something that is. Um, that there's 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 pretty good evidence to suggest that it's that it's adapt uh, that it's adaptive. But anyway, uh, I, I, James still hasn't had an opportunity to uh, you know tell his drug stories. I I was just about to get to that, but you just said 
brain depression stuff and isn't there myelin uh isn't there myelin that um a myelin release with well yeah well okay so there's like there's, there's things like uh changes to prolactin levels there's 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 so many different um uh, things that I I'd have to brush up I'm hoping we'll do a more uh technical show uh, maybe next week or a week after and we'll actually get into some of the technicals and I'll I'll brush back up on, on the specifics but, but yeah I mean there's certainly there's changes to myelin levels there's changes uh all these cascading events that uh that are adaptive Yeah, so as we were talking about uh, antidepressants and the basically different ways men and women may metabolize them and uh, also the suicide risk that associated with and all the other side effects and the variety of uh, drugs that there are on the market currently to treat depression and doctors are just randomly picking at one and go, here, try this one, see if it works. Um, what is your experience with that, James? Okay, uh, I think my mic was switched off, but hopefully you can hear me now. Um, yes. Just briefly, you were talking about adaptations. One theory I'd heard thrown around was that depression allows for really intense introspection and concentration, um, and so that may have been a positive adaptive quality of it. Uh, but anyway, yeah, drugs. I've been on at least seven different antidepressants. Um, I should preface this by saying that don't be put off um, using antidepressant drugs because they, they can be helpful, they can stabilize you, and so on. I've just had unusually bad experiences. I, I don't think um, you're alone in that, uh, but I will, I will say, as much as I will advocate natural things and cognitive behavior therapy and nutrition and things with neuroscience, if you feel like you're going to kill yourself or kill somebody else and you really, 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 really feel like you're going to do it, go fucking take some antidepressants. Go see, it, that is one time, place, I would absolutely advocate the use of psychiatric drugs if you're in that bad of a place. Yeah. But a, I don't a think big, historians a, are different. <laughs> a big problem, I think, is the way that they're used in that there's often either you can't afford a therapist, a proper therapist, or there aren't any available, and so they just put you on drugs to allow you to cope um, without actually addressing any of, any of the problems that are making you depressed or giving you the tools to cope without the drugs. So I think they're used as a panacea when they shouldn't. But, um, you know, going through the list of, list of side effects on these things, I have tended to have the much rarer and stranger <laughs> side effects um, that, that are normally listed. So there's common things like, you know, the first few weeks after you take one, your mood may worsen and so on. You know, that's something you have to look out for. So you need a lot, of, lot more support during the first few weeks when you're on a drug. And yeah, I had that, but other things. Uh, one of them gave me screaming night terrors, which was a lot of fun for everybody. Um, another one uh, gave me horrible night sweats. So yeah, I would wake up in the morning and the bed would be drenched with sweat. I would be drenched with sweat, and it was just weird. Uh, other ones gave me not night terrors, but really intense, weird, bizarre dreams. Um, there were other ones made me so tired. Um, I was only really properly awake for maybe four to six hours a day and so on. Um, one effect that they don't necessarily trumpet, but which is quite common with a lot of antidepressants, is a particular concern for people who work in creative industries. So if you're an artist or a writer or a journalist or someone, you need to be really careful about balancing your, your dosages because it will... It, it has this effect, it kind of suppresses your creativity. Um, my doctor uh, had another patient with depression who was a sculptor, 
and the sculptor had gifted him um, you know several of his works and the doctor uses them as a, as a demonstration of this because he's he's kind of switched onto it um, and you can see a marked difference between the the sculptures before he was diagnosed with depression and and put on the drugs and after like the early ones are much more creative and fluid and um, it's just just it, it's hard to hard to describe it'd be easier if I could show you but I can't and the, the ones afterwards are much more geometric and mathematical and you know there's this just this marked difference between the two so if, if you work in a creative industry you have to be even more careful than people normally are about monitoring your dosage and and finding the right balance that allows you to, to still function um, and, and to work so uh, the other problem I had was I I seem to adapt to these drugs very very quickly um, compared to normal people that that's part of the reason I plowed through so many different drugs they had to you know keep upping the dose upping the dose and quite rapidly I was on the maximum dose and I had such a tolerance for it that they had to switch me to another drug even if I was on a drug that was working well for me um, because it, it rapidly tapered off but I really want to stress that you know if, you, if you're at that point you know, a, a drug is like a, a plaster cast around your leg while it heals, but you need to do other things to make yourself better. You can't, you can't just go on the drug, even if that's all they have available. You need to find something else, like a mutual support group or, or something, to actually address the problems, because the drugs can't last forever. That note, um, did you uh, have any experiences, or maybe your your critters having experiences with? Uh, any kind of psychoactive uh, substances or prescribed substances uh, in your experience, Kat? Um, me and my critters have experience with this. So I at one point was, um, I was sent to the psych ward for a week where the psychiatrist there, he talked to me for about 30 seconds, noticed that, hey, look, you cut your arm, you must be depressed and put me on Zoloft. Um, didn't bother to check my my hist my other medical histories. Um, didn't bother to ask me any sort of questions at all about why I was there. And me being on Zoloft was absolutely the worst experience of my life. I already have a problem with um, dissociating at times, and the Zoloft made that a million times worse because it just kind of put me in this weird sort of daze made it really easy for me to disconnect from reality and I just I wasn't even a person on Zoloft um, meanwhile my roommate is on Zoloft and she's just thriving on it she's doing absolutely wonderful um, so you know drugs they can have a very positive effect but I think that when they're just prescribed all willy-nilly like that it's it, it can be incredibly unhealthy um, my cat now, he was almost euthanized when he was a kitten because they did not think he would ever be adoptable. He had really bad anxiety issues. And, I mean, it made him extremely destructive. He would pee on everything. We'd saran-wrapped our couches. He scratched up everything. And, and then you wouldn't even see him. He did all of this, you know, when the house was quiet and everyone was asleep. Eventually, I convinced my vet to try Prozac. And he thrived on that. He did very, very well. He's still him. It didn't change his personality. He's still not going to run up to strangers and be like, I love you, let's be friends. 
but his peeing stopped completely, his scratching stopped completely, and I was able to then um, use um, rehabilitation techniques and training to then help him get over his greater anxieties. And so basically I took a drug and I combined it with therapy in order to make him a healthier cat. He is no longer on Prozac at this point and you can become friends with him. And that was after many years of solid work. Well, you know, speaking of pussy, uh, we should, <laughs> <laughs> we should um, segue into uh, sex drive and uh, antidepressants. Uh, that was kind of part of the reason for the title, Sex and Depression. Uh, there are some marked differences, particularly in men, uh, well, in women too, because testosterone really is one of the greater markers of sexual uh, prowess, not prowess, that's the wrong word, um, of sexual libido, having a strong sexual healthy drive. Uh, it's generally more pronounced in people that have higher testosterone levels and people have lower testosterone levels, they have, they're basically close to being asexual. And specifically, we would mention briefly that stress uh, lowers testosterone in men and also, antidepressants do some really weird stuff to your sex drive and your whole sexual experience. So, James, take it away. Yeah, that's another thing people really have to have to keep in mind, especially if they're in relationships. And obviously, sometimes relationships can be can be sources of stress for people. Um, more commonly, at least according to the list of side effects, most antidepressants will cause a fairly severe drop in libido. In rare cases, it will have the opposite effect, um, but neither of these circumstances, and I've had both on different drugs, are particularly helpful. You might think it's a good thing to be perpetually randy, but it really isn't. Um, it's incredibly frustrating. Uh, it's, it's a huge stressor. Um, I mean, you, you, you see stories about you know, animals in the zoo, like male lions who are, are cooped up and never get to mate with anything, and they just pace up and down until their paws are bloody, and that's kind of kind of the feeling you get when this thing is is turbocharging you. And the the other end of the scale, you just kind of feel dead and disinterested, and you might find yourself kind of obsessing over that fact and wondering what's wrong with you. So. Yeah, these are all factors you have to keep in mind when you have when you decide whether the, the drug route is is a good one, um, and yeah, whether it's worth it. I think that's that's the big decision you have to decide. Yeah, is it are all these potential side effects and problems, and you should try and find out what issues you do get with a particular drug. But are the, you know where's where's the balance? Do I need to function as a as a full human being? albeit with depression, or do I need to take down the depression? I know these other issues capable with, but yeah, it's um, definitely interesting <laughs> the effect these drugs can have on you. Well, you know, that brings up a really interesting point, and I'm, I'm reading some of the uh, the live chat uh, for the show, and uh, a lot of people are sounding off, a lot of men are sounding off too, on having uh, basically uh, difficulty maintaining erections or even getting any uh, difficulty or lack of ability to come once you do have that or to ejaculate and a variety of other issues that are associated with antidepressant use. Uh, so the interesting thing to me though is what you said about uh, sexual performance exacerbating potential um, depression or anxiety as we as we know a lot of these sort of depressive things they they do come from 
a lot of little things, a lot of stressors, and uh, when you focus on it and ruminate on it, uh, whether you have a male or a female brain, it's, it still creates the same kind of feedback loop when you're aware of these problems and you're thinking about them and you're worried about them and your, your cortisol levels rising, you have anxiety about the whole thing. Uh, so interestingly though, I would like to point something out that I don't know if many people have are aware of or think about it that way, but we hear a lot of criticism. Um, porn gets a lot of flack for, or at least in the mainstream media, um, for giving women an unrealistic expectation about their bodies. Which to me, I mean, I would give the same answer to that uh, that I give to anti-sex bigots who have issues with porn and claim that basically all porn is, uh, you know, women getting their faces stomped on, which those women chose to do, by the way. But whatever. Um, but they will claim that you know, women uh, porn is just women getting their you know faces stomped on and covered in feces and uh, being you know beaten and raped, and that's porn, and so it, it, it's terrible for women. And uh, my answer to those people, as well as people who say that there are unrealistic body expectations for women given by porn, I will say, what porn are you watching? Where the fuck are you getting this stuff? Uh, one, of the most, uh, one of the most popular international stars before she went off um, to do her other things was Sasha Gray. She was petite brunette. She was girl next door. Stoya is one of the others that ma made it pretty big before doing her own thing lately. And she had small breasts, dark hair, Petite body. Uh, it's, porn is no more Jenna Jameson, all blonde with giant, like peroxide blonde with triple D's that are obviously fake. That's an, an overly tan. That 80s sort of model of uh, what porn stars are is no longer relevant in the fucking slightest. So the thing, though, about porn and unrealistic body expectations and unrealistic. Um, sexuality expectations. So I will say that. I mean, porn is fantasy. It does present different people with different ways of having sex. And occasionally it'll center on a particular way of having sex, like the jackhammer thing or like the finger blasting thing. And everyone's like, oh my God, we have to do that. That's a thing to do. And it's like, no, there's other porns. You need to look at it. So don't just... And it is fantasy. It is a particular... It, it's, it's Hollywood for naked people. So, I mean, there are trends. There are dumb things involved with it. But ubiquitously, we have in, you know, 99% of cases of male porn stars, they have to be extremely well-built, which takes a tremendous amount of time, energy, patience, money, whatever, to spend that much time and money at the gym, or spend that much time at the gym. And I guess gyms are expensive, too, so you spend money. Um, so, and protein powders and all that, uh, it... it takes a lot to keep yourself in shape as a male performer because uh, a lot of times male performers in porn is a stunt cock with a torso attached like you don't necessarily I mean you see faces here and there but a lot of the shots are focused on eliminating as much of the dude especially face as possible however there's also the big dicks with constant instant erection and people don't realize that it takes hours sometimes 8 to 12 hours on a point that you shoot, you know, an hour's worth of content that will end up being an hour's worth of content. And you have to be, you know, you have to go off set and you have to go back on set. Things are edited. A lot of times when you have, like, facials and things like that or cream pies, it's not even real cum. So, I mean, it's really at this point, uh, mainstream porn to me anyway, is the Hollywood of naked people. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that give you an illusion that doesn't isn't necessarily real. But there is that common, constant element of men being ready instantly, of them having large penises, 
and uh, cut, large, <laughs> circumcised, large, instantly erect penises and perfect abs, and that is a ubiquitous thing that you can't necessarily sit, find a ubiquitous thing like that about women uh, in porn. So based on that, it does, especially a lot of people watching porn nowadays, um, it gives, I think, very unrealistic expectations of male performance, and frequently also, I've noticed, and I mean, I, I could be off base here, let me know, but from what I've seen, there is a really strong pressure. Oh, uh, real quickly, um, men in porn also have to uh, take Viagra like all the time. There's a performer, Danny Wilde, who uh, I don't know if he goes by that anymore, but he had to quit porn because he was told that, um, dude, look, if you take any more Viagra, you're not going to be able to have an erection ever again. Um, he, it's just one of those things, taking two or so to shoot to be ready. Uh, it's kind of a ubiquitous thing, and um, he obviously abused it and had. Uh, a few priapisms uh, that they have to medically reduce the you know, erection that wouldn't go away. And doctors were like, look, dude, you're going to build up so much scar tissue uh, doing all this that you're not going to actually be able to have an erection, but quit with that. So a lot of that, what we see in porn, um, guys not needing to have any warm-up, them being ready to fuck a girl just because she's there and half-naked, like that's not really realistic for how human being sexuality operates. Foreplay is markedly missing from a lot of uh, a lot of porns, and not just for for women. In fact, they've been big on like oral sex and kissing and things like that that are for women are more um, warm ups, but not so much. On you don't see a soft dick then then gets hard it, during a porno. That's just not something you see. So back to my uh, like other point, it seems that there is emphasis on the men needing to sort of live up to that expectation and that it's their fault and something wrong with the man and his junk that makes him unable to instantly get an erection, that makes him unable to perform. And not only do, that's one of the male's greatest, you know, fears, weaknesses in general, uh, anything to do with, with the penis is like, Oh God, no! That's like, that's my lifeblood, man. That's, those are my babies. You can't, you can't do that. So there's already a lot of stress that has to do with male, you know, genitalia in that sense, but especially performance. I mean, talk about your your worth as a sexually virile man is being put into question. And in my experience, it's women, unless they want to pull this like, oh, you're not attracted to me anymore, uh, you know, drama line. For the most part, it's once again, even that line is still blaming the man. Is still saying that the man is doing something wrong, that he is not being attracted enough, that he is not performing, instead of the woman taking some, any responsibility for actually pleasing the man. So it seems that not only are we talking about depression or antidepressants and depression itself, lowering testosterone levels to the point of antidepressants making it practically impossible or difficult to achieve an erection or perform to you know your standard and on, not, on top of that you have anxiety about all that and then on top of that you also have whoever you're in a relationship with not being understanding of that so is that something that you've experienced or you know can you sound off on that James? It's definitely a source of, source of stress um, I don't know how much I can really talk about it um, because you know that you know when you're talking about relationships, it's going beyond your own personal experience um, and involving other people, which I'm not so comfortable talking about necessarily. Sure. Um, but it is it is definitely a stress. I mean, f for me, most of the drugs cause the the opposite problem, 
of which was to feel hypersexual and with a really a massively heightened libido. You know, I felt like I was 15 again or something, you know, random erections on buses because they're moving kind of nice, you know. <laughs> stuff, Did you take Wellbutrin like by any chance? Which one? Wellbutrin, at least that's the, I guess, American I don't name. know what it, what it goes by here. Uh, uh, yeah, um, let me see if I can find the actual name for it. Uh, but somebody was mentioning that it actually resulted in higher... Um, instances of uh, sexuality and erections and things like that. Mm. So there was at least one that, uh, in one case study, <laughs> someone said <laughs> but, that someone said this happened. But for but you... you know, that, that, that's, that is, it's still another source of stress. I mean, I mean, the classic stereotype is that men have a higher libido than women anyway. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but that's, that's, yeah, that's the stereotype. And then when that's thrown into overdrive, you know, you feel like you're constantly harassing, harassing your partner, you know? Oh, um, I... I'd like to sign off on that, sound off on that real quick. Where um, before I lose my train of thought. Oh, there we go. The sexuality thing. <laughs> uh, yes, I mean as we mentioned, testosterone does have to do with the sort of uh, height and libido. But my theory on on this whole situation is that uh, men and women once again process things differently, and uh, we have this kind of what I would see as projection of uh, women saying, "Oh, men aren't in touch with their feelings. They don't know what's happening." Uh, I was like, well, no, actually, in my experience, from what I've seen, men don't, they have a tipping point. And they don't really know what's wrong sometimes, and they just, they're kind of pissed, but they're just shrugging it off or whatever. And then once they figure out what that fucking thing is, they're like, okay, I'm hungry, I'm angry, I'm horny, I'm tired, like there's a thing, and I feel it, and I need to deal with that. Uh, while I think women kind of have a variety of emotions happening at all times, and it, I don't think that they're muted in the same way. I just and there's not necessarily a tipping point. There's just so many of them that it kind of becomes white noise of stuff constantly, kind of like going on on the inside. Especially the more feminine-brained uh, women that have like slightly more chaotic approaches and and brain patterns to things. Um, well, not brain patterns, but you know, it, we'll get into that in a little bit. <laughs> the male versus female uh, approaches and ways of thinking and things like that. But because there is this chaotic sort of ocean of things. Uh, women may pick up certain instances that made them sad or things that stick out the most or things that made them upset. You know, sometimes if there was like a pretty salient event, but for the most part, it seems to me that women don't really realize the source of their emotion and their anxiety. They will feel sad, they will feel depressed, they will feel emotional. They can't pinpoint one particular thing or they will just act out and they don't really know I don't know why I did that, and that's actually one of the things that was observed uh, in the studies that they did for stress between men and women, that uh, aggression actually, specifically irritability or anger, was greater in women than it was in men. Uh, so there are certain behaviors, uh, or feeling as though you could cry, uh, and feeling depressed or sad, or like headaches or whatever, or lack of energy. A lot of these things were reported, or upset stomach, you know, like all of these things were reported higher by women because they just feel this badness and they can't really necessarily place it perfectly. I think that goes for sex drive. Um, I think women actually have a high sex drive and a need for, or I mean obviously not all women, but on general they have a higher sex drive than we give them credit for. But I think there's an issue wrapped in all that with that women don't realize that they're horny they don't know what it, they don't know that they need it they don't realize what's happening and they just they just feel bad and a lot of times 
an orgasm, and lesbians know this actually, Lily Kate can confirm that, and I can confirm personally that, uh, you know, you have that orgasm and it's like you're crazy meds. It, it is that medicine that makes you not be crazy anymore as you're just going apeshit and you don't know what's happening and then you have a release of an orgasm and you're like, oh wow, I feel so much fucking better. I just needed to have sex. I had no idea. But once again, there are different approaches in how men and women look at sex. Women are very, uh, like people say, you know, men's sexual organ is their eyes because, you know, they, they're visually stimulated, which I think a lot of women are as well. Um, women love butts and abs and Thor's hair and whatever. Uh, but there's more to it than that. It has to be Thor's hair, not just some <laughs> random dudes. But for a guy, it's like, oh, hey, that's a beautiful chick. I don't care who she is, where she's from, what she thinks about me. Come here. You know, I mean, I'm simplifying, of course. But uh, for women, they say the sexual organ is actually the ears. And that's, that's, a, that's a Russian uh, thing, that, you know, for men, it's the eyes, for women, it's the ears. Because compliments and, like, uh, not sweet talk, but role-playing, so to speak, is actually a big part of female sexuality in my experience, which is why Fifty Shades of Grey is so popular and things like that. Women like to read their porn, and they like to mentalize and kind of have a experience of like a cinematog cinematographic, glamorous or whatever, uh, heightened sort of storyline. And they really kind of crave um, a different stimulation than men. On top of that, uh, I noticed in my own personal life and just in general, exposure to uh, sexualized behavior is fascinatingly amazing <laughs> for increasing your libido. And I'm not talking about porn. I am not talking about porn because I think as women, uh, us as women uh, who are perhaps more competitive or the ones that have self-esteem issues, and I'm both of those, uh, <laughs> there is kind of an element of competition with the women on the screen. Uh, and feeling like I'm not good like that, I don't look like that, my butt's not as good, you know, so you have those approaches because, you know, our brain tends, uh, anyway, women just have that sort of uh, approach to porn sometimes, I think, why they push it away. Uh, they have a lot of conflicted feelings and they're self-esteem and worth as a woman in this very narrow hierarchical primitive sense is challenged and they cannot let go of that to enjoy the actual activity which is I think why women choose DPs, gangbangs and um, well, specifically actually threesome, DP and gay porn is what women watch and search for and I think that seeing two men together uh, removes that element of competition with a woman but it still maintains the sexual aspect of like the raw penis yes excite sexual thing uh, and so but for most normal people and normal women and even slightly abnormal women I think things like game not specifically Game of Thrones because everybody's like crying or dying when they're having sex but a show like Vikings uh, I also heard the Borgias has uh, I haven't watched it but I, I hear it has a lot of sex scenes I think shows like that are particularly powerful for f awakening female sexuality because it shows people in a sexual context but it gives the clues or the cues of what is happening in the way that women appreciate it which is d like changes in breathing that indicate uh, an emotional response which is what women crave. Uh, I mean there's this saying that guys just want a trophy on their wall and to move on and that's not been my experience at all. In my experience guys want a steady girlfriend forever and ever. The first one they meet they're ready to marry her for the rest of this fucking life. 
while women, once they get an approval of a man, such as you know going on a date or getting a phone number or whatever, or sleeping with him, I don't know, whatever her benchmark is for getting that approval, um, she'll be like, okay, great, that's that's a great notch on my belt. Uh, next one, please. So let's uh, let's actually uh, James has a good good point. Let's hear Cat's uh, take on the uh, uh, the sexuality of of women from her perspective. If Cat is still there, Cat may not still be there. Okay, Cat is not there. <laughs> I was just thinking. Yeah, she's she's being. I being forgot quiet. to unmute my mic. <laughs> I'm still here. Um. So women and sexual. I I mean honestly, I think Anna just summed up most of my thoughts on it. So I don't really have much to add to that. Well, you know, as a writer of erotica and um, someone who kind of deals with, uh, you know, you yourself are, you know, adult talent and you also write uh, erotic works. Uh, so in that sense, do you cater your works to men or women or do you just write something that appeals to you? And, you know, would you agree that uh, sometimes watching uh, straight up porn might be cause feelings that you're not, like you don't understand what's happening but you don't really like it and it makes you feel bad or whatever but then watching something more abstract that has a storyline and like people sighing and doing like fun things like that with implied uh, sexuality, is that something that you know gets you off more than more raunchy stuff? I am definitely more into erotica than visual porn. I prefer 100% to read my porn rather than watch my porn. I um, actually almost only masturbate two words while I'm reading. Um, when I do watch porn, it's I look at it more from a curiosity perspective. I, I'm looking at the cinematography and the angles and things like that, probably just because I have a performance background. And so it's it's difficult for me to to separate myself from that. Um, in terms of writing, I typically do write for a male audience, but only because generally the people buying my erotica are male people, and I want them to enjoy what they're buying from me. But that doesn't mean I also don't enjoy it, because I just really like writing sexy things. So it seems like there's kind of like a, a requirement of of feeling in a story, uh, and though and when you're like watching porn, for instance, you may not feel like you're part of the story as much as when, like for instance, watching some something that's a like uh, what uh, Cherry was mentioning was that we're watching like Vikings or whatever, where you're kind of drawn into the story. You may not literally see yourself in that place, but you're drawn into a story that uh, that has sexuality into it, in it. And so perhaps that's kind of the uh, more the appeal that you kind of have to feel part of you know a uh, a drama. Yeah, perhaps. Um, watching a porn that has a storyline would probably get to me more than porn without, although. I can easily get turned on by just little sexy images that I happen to be scrolling past on Tumblr. Yeah, it, seem, it seems to make sense that there wouldn't be just a complete binary where it's just one or the other, but uh, a, a little bit of both, whereas there's kind of a preference for one side or the other. Because, of course, men are the same, you know, same thing, being more drawn into, uh, you know, a story where, like uh, like Cherry was mentioning, like the breathing and, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. you know, men can certainly be turned on by things that have absolutely, you know, don't even have to have nudity. It can, you know, just have, you know, people who are passionately 
into what they're doing, and you know, and that can, that can do it for men, uh, of course, as well. So there's there's a, I think maybe it's just kind of a, a proclivity more than a uh, you know binary. Yeah, and I did read somewhere that um, goes with what Anna was saying earlier about how men are primarily turned on by their eyes and their nose, while women are primarily turned on by their ears and um, the physical sensation of touch. And that's definitely true for me. But the study also said that most people are on a, they're somewhere in the middle. You know, they're, they're a blend of feminine and masculine um, traits when it comes to being turned on, just that those, those were a generic tendency. Right, and of course we're talking about also uh, warm-up or sort of like when you're completely cold, sober, not turned on, and you're like going right. into a world and you're like, oh, this suddenly turns me on, versus when you possibly are already turned on and you're just wanting to like orgasm. I will personally skip past all the bullshit parts of dialogue in my hentai and go to the action when I'm like trying to masturbate. But at the same time, uh, there is this interesting thing you mentioned about Tumblr photos. I'm a big fan of reblogging Tumblr porn on one of my two accounts and something about just the static image and frequently in black and white too. It's like, what the fuck is this? This is really, really strange. Of black and white makes it classy. That's right. It's the whole the difference between porn and art is the, the lighting and, and vases, having vases. <laughs> That's Definitely it. the vases. It's a Terry Pratchett skit. Uh, nice but, aspidistra makes all the difference. Uh, so as we're talking, there are male and female differences in terms of sexual um, or a male brain or female brain differences in how you experience sexuality and what body parts turn you on and or what parts you like touched and things like that or don't like touched and. I think that really goes to in my experience and in cats too, because um, we're not necessarily on the same spectrum of you know gender. Like I don't think Cat and I are necessarily in the same area of being more towards the masculine or towards the feminine. Um, I mean, we complement each other well, but uh, I think I perhaps might tend more towards the masculine side, um, and she has a more empathetic, you know, like more female sort of minded um, things there. So that kind of leads into this big thing that I want to hear about and that I want people to hear about because I, I've heard it and I, I agree with it and I love it, uh, but of the, the approach of seeing the male-sided or the female-sided thinking in you know everyday life or just world in general. Okay, well, there's, uh, yeah, it's it's really kind of an, uh, you know, ever since you were uh, first going to... Uh, to university and I uh, was uh, uh, you know attending some of the classes there etc uh, you know I've been interested in everything from depression to uh, well, you name it about the the, the way that uh, the brain works and it, you know and going back to like the for instance the SSRIs there are uh, there, there have been studies showing that you know SSRIs do impact uh, hormones and uh, and then you know the hormones then in turn impact the brain so there's, there's always these feedback loops and uh, and so so, um, you, you know, the uh, one of the things that we were talking about very early on in the uh, in the podcast was the um, the way in which certain nucleus, I think it was the uh, the medial preoptic area, how it's impacted, uh, it's specifically by hormones, uh, can change. Uh, you know, mounting behavior can change. You know, the sexual behaviors of uh, an animal, and of course, the same thing with humans. Um, so uh, all of this kind of comes down to a perspective about um, the, uh, the brains in which instead of looking at people, uh, there, there's definitely 
uh, dimorphism. I mean, that's that's something we, we, you know, the fact that we can't even talk about that is just absurd. And I've kind of just, you know, we're we're past all those people who are who are uh, who, who can't accept that that brains are sexually dimorphic. It's just a scientific fact. Uh, and, you know, there is, uh, and that dimorphism goes beyond just sexual behavior. It has to do with the ways in which we conceive things. And, and having a fear of difference is is actually a uh, a, a really uh, bad way of doing things. It's, it doesn't. Um, whatever you fear differences, somehow you are you are basically um, believing that one thing is uh, necessarily specifically better than the other, and that's just kind of a simplistic. Uh, it's a simpleton's viewpoint, is what it is. Um, so, but going back to the, the 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 spectrum of male to female, I think I, I you know it's one of the things that that I can bring out with some st- studies and things like that in a more in a more technical environment, um, you know, perhaps like I said on a follow up show or something like that, I'll just like list tons of studies on, uh, you know, how these different brain areas um, and these uh, the, how how the the larger picture of what I'm you know trying to to get at here will uh, will come together. I can I can you know uh, support it more specifically, but when it comes down to looking at the way that the uh, the human brain works. If you look at it from kind of a uh, problem-solving perspective, there are a few different things. If you look at uh, you know the development of brains as from a uh, well, I'm I'm a software engineer, uh, and so the uh, in a past life uh, for over a decade, and uh, the uh, the the idea of attempting to solve a problem uh, comes up with uh, you end up with these different things that uh, that are necessary. And for instance, if you look at it in a matter of like processing time, uh, one of the, the things that I always use as a very simple example that anyone can understand is uh, if you have um, say you have a a hundred slots of processing time, and uh, there's a hundred slots wide by a hundred slots deep and you only have a hundred points of processing and there is in one of those slots in that 100 by 100 grid there is something you need to find is it best to go put a hundred units of processing into one slot or is it best to put uh, one unit of processing into 100 slots or is it better to have a mix? And when it, when it comes down to it, it has to do with searching. And there's a very general precept that you'll find in the way that nature works, that there is this, uh, this it's not just a balance of um, putting you know, uh, just as, as many into depth as you do into breadth, but actually a wave going back and forth between depth and breadth. And this kind of has to do with the male and female uh, mind. And when I talk about the male and female mind, I'm talking about extremely, when you go all the way to the extremes of what you might consider feminine and, uh, and the extremes of what you might consider uh, masculine. And there's very few people who actually uh, fit those extremes because I think that everyone has, it, you have to have these uh predominantly male and predominantly female characteristics in every mind for it to work properly. Now, I think that, uh, well, I know that the, the more pedantic, um, you know, getting down to very specifics, that is a more masculine um, mind. It's, you, one of the things that you find in, uh, in autism is that it is a uh, hyper-masculination. There is changes to the amygdala. There are things that, that basically it is kind of, is a, it's a type of specialization in which, um, 
uh, like autism itself, is, for instance, is a spectrum. You have everything from somebody who's actually autistic to people who are more Aspergers, and then there are people who are just more nerdy. You know, and, and what it comes down to is that is the ability to focus upon simplification and details. And you know, uh, one of the things that uh, James brought up earlier was the uh, how that uh, just these changes in serotonin. Um, you know, which the, the person was taking antidepressants, they it changed their their sculptures from being <coughs> excuse me let's change their sculptures from being very uh, complex um, you know uh, type of sculptures to the more simple type of sculptures now you know simple is not bad that is you you need to be able to focus you need to be able to get down to something in particular otherwise you're stuck in analysis paralysis you can that's 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 one of the things that it's so difficult to get across to people is like whenever you start arguing for you know, having some depth, they're like they they start you know saying, well, you, then you want to go a hundred points deep in one slot. No, I don't. And at this, and then when you start arguing for breadth and saying, well, then then they assume that you mean that you want to put one point of processing into one hundred slots. And so, no, I don't want that either. And because that's that, those are the two simple you know ways that we often kind of look at. Um, uh, the way that the brain may work is, is we always you know, try to try to pick one or the other, but there's really there's a wave and there's a balance between them. But um, so you know, like you were saying, the the uh, the, the changes in serotonin which we uh, associate with uh, more feminine brains have uh, more serotonin, and what you end up finding is that there is a uh, there is a breadth type of perspective that is associated with uh, with serotonin, and so you end up having um, that. That's why I was uh, when I was talking about. Uh, how you have this kind of this type of art depressed artist archetype that seems like kind of a a cliche. Well, there's a reason why it's a cliche because there is a mechanism behind it that where the depression the, the depression in a, in especially in males leads to a slightly more feminized brain and a more feminized brain is one that looks at complexity more. But at the same time, one of the things that you'll find is a depressed person uh, or a person who has more who has a, a tremendous amount of serotonin. A lot of times that they are the kind that will get stuck in analysis paralysis. They will be looking at too many different things and won't take that okay screw all that other stuff let's focus on this one thing and move forward doesn't matter if it's wrong I'm just moving forward and that's the thing is that well then you also have the more masculine brain which it's just like uh, we're picking this one thing and we're, we're confidently moving forward and you, you'll go straight right right into the arms of hell you know just marching straight forward not looking side to side because you got to make progress and sometimes you're making too much progress in completely the wrong direction so uh, so you have these complementary aspects to the to the brain so a lot of times I try to uh, you know uh, uh, whenever I'm, I'm I'll vaguely kind of reference these these two aspects of the the human brain that are uh, that that work in conjunction with each other and it's you know, like I said it's kind of a, a problem solving thing and so I believe that what happens with uh, with male brains when they are um, depressed is that they are getting that complexity, that uh, that additional level of complexity that's necessary. But I think it's supposed to be part of a wave. In other words, where you drop down into that more complex, looking at all the options, reintegrating all this many different you know perspectives and viewpoints and and all those things. But then it's supposed to come back to the more masculine viewpoint, which is okay. Now that I've looked at all these things, I can't put my effort towards everything. It's impossible. I'm one human being. I have one set of resources. I have one amount of energy and I have to focus and put it in something. And then 
<clears throat> I think that's when the the depression starts to come to an end when a ma- when the men are capable of getting more back to that um, that masculine uh, mindset of cutting off all of the 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 extras and making that leap to go forward, which is is actually that's one of the things that has to do with like you know leadership. You have to be able to you have to be able to to make those mistakes. You have to be able to, to take that risk of just moving forward and cutting off all of the different possibilities because there's like an infinite number of things that could possibly go wrong and there's all these different considerations. You, you have to be able to to continue to just move forward and focus on that one path and, and try to make it happen, which of course goes back to you know what Cherry was talking about when it comes to having the, you know, you look at the the, the, the berries and the, you know, the different colors of things to determine if maybe it's, it's going to make you and you know picking out all these different things well that's that's really important from that perspective you know when you're uh, in ancient times or, or as opposed to when you're a hunter and you're like okay no we need to pick that one we need to stick with it and run it down and kill it you know, there's and, and you can, you can see these things this wave between uh, generalization and specialization throughout uh, nature in uh, in the way that uh, animals develop in um, you know, in uh, evolution, where they, they have in, in areas where there are more um, more resources, you have uh, a lot of animals that, that develop behaviors that aren't necessarily directly. Uh, necessary for their uh, survival, such as like the you know uh, elaborate feathers and elaborate um, mating rituals and all these different uh, attempts that the that you can basically kind of see nature having two aspects of a mind, whether it be the you have the, the the tropical rainforest in which all these different perspectives are capable of being looked at, and then you have the desert in which only the most specific effective thing can be uh, you know used but then you know the, the what you lose in focusing in the desert on what's the most effective is all of the different um, possible uh, paths of exploration in other words like for instance if this if the desert were to change slightly the, the spe- super specialized niches that all of those animals have perfected the slightest change to them could kill them off entirely whereas in the rainforest huge changes can happen and because there's so many different species you end up having all of these uh, different niches that they can now fill with their with because there are a lot of different species now this is a, a metaphor for how our brains are a, a attempt to solve problems you see it in, in nature itself so um, yeah like I said I'll, I'll, I'll get to some uh, some studies etc that that you know, point out exactly how this this masculine versus feminine uh, mindset exists in each one of us but it's uh, it's interesting to if you can look at it from that perspective um, I think then you you start to see how that um, male and female roles and dimorphism and things like that play a, a, a an interdependent role that you know even though we may be to one side or the other of that uh, that mental spectrum uh, in what we gain in specialization, we lose in generalization. What we gain in in you know a breadth of view, we lose in a you know in the the, the picking up the specifics. And you can see this from the artistic. You know, when you're, you're more of an artist, you ge- you deal a little more in generalities. You deal with more inaccuracy. It's not you don't have to have that mathematical perfection. You don't have to have that you know. Um, it's it's not the same thing when you're when you're being more artistic you're you're allowing a lot more um, a, a lot more generality a lot more 
error, a lot of uh, you know things that are not specifically perfectly matching. Whereas you know, so then when you're like a mathematician, you got to. I mean, you can't. When you're a mathematician, you got to get down to the nitty gritty details. You can't. You can't. You know, miscalculate it. You know, the slightest miscalculation, and in certain applications, completely destroys them. It doesn't work at all. And, um, and so I think that they, that you know, realizing that we we have a give and take when we're moving across that spectrum is uh, is crucially important. And being able to respect both of those mindsets and and realize that. Um, that people lay along that spectrum for good reason, uh, I think is really helpful. And I think that whenever we're mentalizing, whenever we're trying to achieve, uh, uh, you know, our own kind of mental health, that recognizing that whatever we lose in one area, we gain in another, and being okay with that, and then being able to adjust from one place to the other is, uh, I think, I think that that's very helpful. And I think that there's a tremendous amount of uh, scientific data to back up this specific viewpoint. So uh, anyhow, I, I hope that uh, kind of gets across what I was talking about. It very much does. Uh, yeah, you can also mute your um, thingy directly. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, we're in, in the same space, so there's a bit of. I don't know if you guys can hear it. I can hear myself echoing through the uh, through his uh, insanely uh, good mic. But that was a perfect segue. Uh, you know, talking about um, sort of more masculine brains or rather more feminine brains is what I guess we're gonna call them of the the creative types uh, and the more um, sort of you know artists as you mentioning and uh, here in chat uh, we're, we're discussing with Kat and, and James that um, perhaps there is some sort of approach to uh, reading or writing Probably reading erotica specifically uh, that I and going off of your early point that that men can also be aroused by you know not directly oh my god in your face boner situation or vagina uh, I mean in fact I've had you know clients who are like you know just tease me for a while like give me the strip tease do the don't just get straight to it um, but I think that ties into something that James was saying that there is an element of wanting to be involved, of wanting to be in the scene. There's a you know, POV point of view, porn is a big thing. And we have, um, I in my experience anyway, there's a lot of like, of ways of like jerk off instructions and like joy type porn and, and other uh, custom videos that uh, people request that has to do with specifically one-on-one -on -one attention between you and the person who's the man who's on the other side of the screen. So being wanted is, to me, generally a very common thing that men actually, that's how their sex drive kind of goes, is they, they want to be desired. So a higher level of excitation and things like that will certainly, I, I can see that being a, a catalyst for you know arousal. Um, but there's also, going back to the artist thing, that there does seem to be... Um, more of an acceptance, obviously, of you know homosexuality and things like that in our society. And there's even now we're starting to accept bisexuality in men specifically as well. Uh, but you don't have to be uh, bisexual or gay in order to have a more feminized way of thinking, a more feminized rather brain or whatever. Um, it is associated with artistic language, creative abilities that is more of the... Uh, right side of the brain, which is dominant in women, uh, versus logic, which is the left side of the brain, is more dominant in men. So we see this parallel uh, of, or this fractal of the hemispheres, the, the left and the right, uh, and they have to do with being in the brain, 
and they kind of have a one side is masculine and the other side is feminine and then we have within and that makes the individual more masculine or feminine and then within relationships and within groups we also have more masculine leaning or more feminine leaning uh, behaviors so it's kind of a fractal thing that seems to permeate um, a lot of humanness um, so we're talking about in our little chat here about uh, writing and uh, being kind of responsive to reading uh, erotica also as a writer or just in general. Um, I would like to get back to Kat and James about the the being a writer and, and that whole thing, but really quickly um, I'd like to add information about reading fiction and that is it, it does create empathy uh, it makes people basically more empathetic and, and nicer and better people uh, after they have, like, if they read fantasy or non, basically fiction, it doesn't have to be fantasy, it just has to be fictional work. So going through the motions of, or specifically, because going through the motions you just associate with faking it, but, I mean, going through the experiences of the character that you read and being with them and understanding them and understanding what drives them, understanding what drives a variety of other characters because a lot of times writing that actually uh, Is her mic getting up for um, everyone yeah, else? Just, just dropped out. All right. Um, how much of that did you guys miss? Uh, a lot of it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It's all right. Um, okay. Well, mainly I was saying that um, we have these uh, trains of thought that are lost is what we have. <laughs> is, uh, um, I, was, I was citing two examples of uh, masculine and feminine thinking. And um, Okay. I don't know if you guys heard about the, the fractal... Thing, but that doesn't necessarily matter because uh, I'll be moving on more into the writing stuff. And people who read fiction uh, actually have greater empathy, um, evidence of greater empathy than people who read nonfiction or people who don't read at all. So reading uh, a fantasy or a fictional story actually improves your ability to relate to other people. I think a lot of that has to do with going th through the process of the character, the main character, and the variety of um, sometimes more than one character. So you're going through a variety of experiences and you're understanding the motivations and the internal emotions uh, of these people that you're reading about. So not only is it a meditative you know, process and it's just good for you in general, but you are actually developing theory of mind uh, based on reading about the different characters and how they react to things and that has been shown to increase empathy and intelligence. And we also uh, have evidence of more, so of course, of empathy, we're talking about more feminine qualities. And there's also been evidence uh, of men who have higher, um, who have more female-like brains, and even homosexual men, they which have uh, brains more like women. We, we've seen those studies that they activate, a gay men's brains activate a lot more like women's than men's, straight men's, that is. And uh, having that, Myelin is actually a big part of homosexual male brains, which is also a big part of the female brain, uh, and it has to do with plasticity and ability to change, and uh, it does add to a certain type of intelligence, uh, to an intelligence. It's not necessarily a what Richard was saying earlier. It's not like one of those focused, down-the-line, uh, you know, practical, linear, cause-and-effect uh, sort of 
situation that men kind of more masculinized brain, brains tend to think in those patterns but it's a more seeing the patterns and everything looking at the broad spectrum and picking out patterns and evaluating a new information or finding new information based on a lot of different thresholds uh, that other information reached that you have like these basically patterns. Uh, it, yeah, it's well, it's concurrent processing versus linear processing. We had a very good example of it earlier when, it when we were talking about SSRIs. They know exactly what the I mean the down at the freaking atomic level practically they know what is happening. But the problem is that that is that kind of linear processing. That is the way that they are using their search algorithm them right now is through linear processing, but they're not using concurrent processing, which means that they're not connecting all of the different things that they have found all throughout uh, the medical industry and all th throughout all of the studies. There's not a good way to connect all that information and make it interact properly so that you've got this really broad perspective of exactly how these mechanisms you know what they mean and what their long what the cascades uh, you know what the neurochemical, neurochemical cascades end up creating and how that they impact emotions, how that they create specific thoughts, all of those things are, require a concurrent processing type of you know, uh, breadth uh, search that is not the same as the depth search that we focus on right now in biology. And so that's, that is a very good uh, example of what you're trying to uh, uh, elucidate there, I guess. Yes, uh, definitely, and uh, that kind of ties back to what we're, uh, James was saying here in chat where we're talking about reading erotica and uh, having an experience from it that also works for men, but that might be because of being less gender typical for a man. So what are your thoughts on that, James? I, I think maybe that's it. Um... Like, like we keep saying, you know, everyone exists somewhere on a spectrum, and we're only talking about very sort of broad masculine tendencies and broad feminine tendencies. But um, yeah, I've I've written some erotica, though there's less less call for it being written by men, I think. Um, and it also, I also find it more involving um, than than watching porn. It, it connects more. And I, what I think that comes down to is this kind of element of interactivity. And you were talking, you know, looking at porn is very passive. But then I'm thinking, I was thinking about it while you were talking, and you know, the point of view stuff is more involving because it's like you're being talked to. Um, and the act of reading, because you're engaged in using your imagination to picture the scene and so on, it it feels more interactive. You're you're more involved. Um, and then you know, further on from that, you can look at things like um, you know, custom clips from cam girls or yeah, you know, cyber sex things, things like that. That that takes you to the to that point where you it's it's fully interactive, um, and I think that's that's kind of what miss what's what what's missing in a lot of porn is, is that is that sense of human connection and interactivity because you know when when you make love to somebody even if yeah even if they're tied up or whatever it, it's still an interactive experience that there's 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 feedback to it and that's that's what's missing from the kind of the, the passive experience of porn. At, le at least speaking for myself, that's why the written word is is more appealing and has more of an effect for me. I, th I think if yeah, that's more perfectionist, so be it. Simplified porn is kind of that. It is kind of a hypermasculination. It's it's it is it's too simple. There's not enough breadth to it. 
Yeah, it's, it's mechanical, which is all very well for getting off, but it, it, it leaves an itch unscratched. Is anyone else hearing uh, Cherry? Because apparently she seems to be having some no. sort of connection problem. Oh, uh, yeah, somehow there's uh, she's got a serious connection problem. Uh, t test, test something out again, see if we can hear you. Yep, uh, we're still not getting anything. Um, let's see. I think we're back. Oh, there we go. Oh, there, there, she is. <laughs> there you I, are. I finally heard um, she was or Richard Rawls' voice coming through the um, microphone for me because everything disappeared. Like I couldn't hear anyone. I actually thought James cut out, and I was like, "Oh no, did we lose James?" And then you guys couldn't hear me, and it was. A, tiny little clusterfuck, but um, if you were uh, kind of uh, wrapped up with that, uh, what were you wanting to say, James? Uh, I think what you were uh, leading uh, into about, or speaking about the POV, or interactive, rather, experience, is uh, something that actually Kat was mentioning in chat, um, so uh, take it away, Kat, if you'd like, about, like, the uh, Yeah, so, now that we're all talking about sexuality in a podcast about depression, let's kind of join the two. Um, James is talking about being in, involved in, in the writing process and in the erotica and how that made it better for him. And um, I've noticed that a lot of guys will seek out professional sex workers, um, prostitutes, cam girls, pro-doms, you know, whatever, specifically for the intimacy and the emotional connect. It's not just about the sex. Um, you see that a lot where with pro-doms and, you know, other sex workers offering counseling and therapy sessions. And, you know, I'm even considering going through that degree myself just so I actually have that degree when I have clients who ask me for a therapy session. Um, I think it's very interesting and very sad that men are stigmatized more for seeking out a licensed mental health professional than they are for paying for sexual services. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's it, it's funny how you know there's there's it's just like men can't express themselves through crying, but they're they're allowed to you know be angry. Uh, you know, there, there there's so many different structures around the way a man is supposed to behave, uh, and how they're either you know thrown away uh, or or accepted uh, based upon very very fine lines. Well, there's actually even issues with men being able to express anger. We are moving away even from that sort of coping mechanism uh, that men had, and we're getting to the point of people decrying toxic masculinity and, uh, you know, all the shooters are men, which that's not even true. Uh, but they're also completely ignoring the role that perhaps women in these people's lives have played uh, on their behavior. Because, I mean, men and women are the only two species of human that we have we can only you know relate with each other and we do constantly relate with each other all the time and it's a you can't just say it's a one-way street when there's two players it's, it does go back and forth and I think it's a fascinating point that you brought up Kat that um, people feel like it's it's basically better for a man to you know it's more acceptable for a man to have a sex drive and to pay a woman for sex rather than for men to have emotional vulnerabilities like women do and humans do in general um, and 
I'm not sure exactly where I wanted to go from here, but I did have something on the pro-dom um, counseling sort of experience. I, I Actually, I think, um, here it is. I, I believe it was a uh, local um, Oakland, uh, you know, sex worker, prostitute, who mentioned that some people come in uh, just to unload. They want to just talk uh, and kind of have basically a therapy session, not any kind of, you know, cognitive behavior or anything you need a license for, but just somebody to listen. And we have, of course, the example of Catcher in the Rye where, I mean, he was young, but the, the kind of whole situation with, you know, spoilers, the whole situation with him uh, purchasing, with Holden purchasing a prostitute there, and then she arrives and he kind of wanted to lose his virginity or do, like, the sexual thing, so he has, like, sex on his mind, basically, and I'm just going to do this, and then when she arrives, he just wants to talk. And um, it's, I think, a very big misunderstood thing about men that um, they just want sex and that, uh, yeah, sexual desirability is a really big part of male self-esteem and uh, unless they, until they have it or unless it's been taken away, you don't necessarily think of it as, as something that men, that affects their mental well-being, but it does. Being desired and feeling desirable is one of the most important things for men to feel young and healthy in that way. Uh, so we have the situation where uh, men actually want companionship. They actually want to be um, with someone for a long time. They have devotion, and yes, they, they do have a sex drive that is they're perhaps more aware of than women, and sometimes they will take sex as a expression of love and intimacy because there are like five different ways in which uh, human beings recognize being loved or cared for and some of them like to be given gifts others like to be physically touched others like to be told things so there's different ways in which people feel loved and appreciated and sometimes sex will do that I think for men it is like yes she wants me sexually this is great I'm awesome everything's good uh, but a lot of times in my experience and what you guys are saying about porn um, or you James are about uh, porn lacking something and a lot of people in, in, in chat also um, do mention that there is this kind of you know porn doesn't necessarily do it for them uh, even I have people that are like hey I love you I would like to watch your stuff but like I don't porn doesn't really do it for me um, so I think there's a lot to the male need uh, to be loved and to be interacted with and to be personally desired by a woman not just necessarily watch some people doing stuff which has a sexual arousal all to its own, um, but I feel like men more overwhelmingly want relationships, um, if that makes any sense. I mean, I think some men push away from relationships because, or are seem seem to push away or are seen as uh, pushing away because uh, of the negatives <laughs> and the walking on eggshells and having, uh, they basically see all the worst that relationships can bring, and so they're like, oh no, fuck that, I don't want anything to do with that when they're younger but as time goes on I've seen multiple people confess they're like I'm so so many years old and I haven't had a kiss and all I want is just a, a girlfriend forever and other guys are like yeah you know I've been a man whore my whole life and no I want a stable somebody to love me every night uh, so it, all across the walks of life and, and sexuality types uh, it seems men ultimately arrive at uh, sooner or later arrive at needing female companionship and uh, is that does that ring true for you guys? Well, no, it's true for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I think so. Um, is it a function of age, though? I, I don't I don't know. 
I don't know if I'm convinced by that. I think there's there's more pressure on you when you're younger to kind of uh, you know, play the field and show off your virility. But um, yeah, plenty of people hook up young and and stay hooked up. So I don't I don't know whether it's an in, innate thing or a, or a societal thing. There, I'd have to think about it more. Yeah, I think it's just a uh, you know companionship. I, th I think it's just kind of basically human. I mean, it's really all there is to it. Uh, I think all of us, you know, uh, need companionship in one form or another. And and uh, and trying to get it just from a group or trying to get it from you know trying, well, first off, when you're you know when you're a guy, there's only a certain level of uh, intimacy allowed with other guys. You can't, you know. There's there's a, a yeah, level. Yeah. <laughs> there's only a certain level that you can, you know, a certain lines you just can't cross. You know, you can't, so you can't talk about. And, oh. uh, and so that's that's one of the things that I think that's why they uh, there's, you know, when when a person doesn't necessarily want a relationship, but they want to also be able to cross those lines. That's why sometimes you end up having the the the, the the prostitute or the uh, sex worker of whatever kind that is also a therapist because it's somebody they can talk to and cross those lines with, uh, and that you know for the companionship of the need. But go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, I think it's so. I just lost my train of thought and then got it again. Awesome. Uh, you guys were saying something that I wanted to interject. Um, only in Western cultures. Because in Asian cultures and in Middle Eastern cultures, I mean, maybe I don't really know those all that well uh, that are specifically like super Middle East, but like the more outlying ones that are closer to Russia and all of those, and Asia, uh, there are elements of male bonding that are still allowed to have. Uh, like men take saunas together and they're like you're just fucking butt-ass naked there. Uh, men hold hands in, um, I don't remember if it was uh, Asian or Middle Eastern country. I think it was in... Um, uh, Actually, Pakistan, uh, there were you know men just walking down the street and they're holding hands, uh, and that's something that I used to do with my girlfriends as with my friends that were girls, uh, as a young child in Russia too, or as a, as a teenager. Uh, it's just one of those companionship, friendship things that uh, moving to America has kind of obliterated all that. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of sterility involved in human relations. I mean, we've gotten to the point where uh, schools in the Mid-South and maybe other areas too, but in like Mississippi specifically, they were banning children from being able to touch each other on the playground. Forget wrestling, forget playing tag. You, could, you literally cannot lay a finger on another child without them calling parents and creating a big issue about it. So not only has have simple actions between same-sex people like holding hands or hugging or Italian men, they kiss each other on the cheek. Russian men, they also, uh, you know, after drinking <laughs> usually, <laughs> or some old, older ones will kiss each other on the cheek. It's just one of the, or actually both cheeks. It's like in some, a thing. In some cultures, it's okay for men to kiss each other on the lips without, without the slightest bit of, you know, homosexuality part of it. Uh, I believe it is actually specifically French culture. Uh, we were watching uh, a specific thing that uh, illustrated that. It was, I believe, in the police department where a guy went around and gave everybody a kiss on the lips. And it was just a guy kissing other guys. So these things uh, are completely normal in other sides of the world because you understand that there's a difference between platonic need for companionship and sexual arousal to someone. While in America, specifically, maybe also in Britain, since we are your bastard child, um, there is kind of an element, culturally, I mean, uh, and otherwise, <laughs> there is an element of uh, sexualizing things that aren't sexualized uh, elsewhere because we live, I think, in such a puritanical, sterile situation where people don't see each other nude or half-nude or in any way 
are exposed to the humanity of each other, to the skin of each other, touching the skin, looking at skin. Um, yet we know from evidence that human physical touch is something that can help AIDS patients and uh, actually regain their appetite and not waste away as much. It has to do with a variety of other studies that have proven that human touch alone uh, is something that even like primates... No, it can make, yeah, it can make the difference between life and death for uh, for children that are born premature, uh, just pro properly touching them, uh, you know, can, can literally be the difference between whether that child lives or dies. Uh, you know, there's just so many different ways in which we are absolutely dependent upon uh, human contact. I and mean, even here in the U.S., uh, where with, where we've gotten more and more into this gender binary and homophobia, the, there's the, gotten where the you know you can look at these older pictures and men were touching way more than they do now. And now you know I, I hey I feel the, the 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 being not wanting to touch any other guy's thing. It's it, but it's a it, I know it's unhealthy. Uh, you know it's it, it it's one of those things where it's funny because I, I you know I I consider myself. A more towards the feminine spectrum of uh, of males. However, I I don't have the slightest uh, homosexual you know, urge. It's not you know. And whereas I I'm, I'm completely okay with guys that are homosexual. It's like that's that you know, I think that that's a, a completely uh, natural and uh, you know it's it's so automatic in so many different people's cases. It's it's you know kind of an irrelevant thing. And so it was one of those things that you know even when I was understanding my more you know feminine uh, aspect within myself that you know that immediately I'm like oh my god I, you know fear that I'm homosexual in some way and it, it, it's just it's just ridiculous we just have this this idea of a binary person that is it, that just doesn't match reality and it's when we have these these dumb ideas that are that are so ingrained that we end up if through fear we end up you know avoiding looking at them and then end up not finding that well yeah there was nothing to fear in the first place and, yeah. and so it leads to these, these bad systems where we're you know uh, you, you oh if you're not this crazy weird masculine you know archetype that nobody actually exists as then you're worthless I mean it's just oh, it's just ridiculous how badly we screw ourselves over yeah and you combine that fear of maybe undermining your own performative sexuality with you know a sense of propriety and not wanting to show weakness and yeah that definitely you know the, the combination of the three definitely prevents men from being emotionally intimate let alone anything else well, that's the the thing too. I think might have something to do with the prevalence of the particular toxic brand of uh, Southern Baptism, the Calvinism, in in America. There is a tremendous amount of uh, homophobia and uh, things like that from the the more regressive far right uh, type of uh, movements or ideologies. I'm not really sure why we still hold on to this idea, this bi gender binary of uh, you know human beings have to be this way, and they have to behave in this way, or they they don't deserve their label of their gender. And it's uh, I think it's one of those cases of our instincts uh, still not catching up with our civilization. And the interesting thing about the touch thing, or not so interesting, I guess, but uh, quite, quite sad, uh, we, as we elucidated, there are ways in which human touch is extremely important. And yet uh, there's a marked absence of touch uh, for men. Not only are men not touching each other because of what we just described, but also women aren't necessarily touching men because that's just never been the traditional go-to thing. I mean, we've all been raised with uh, the whole, you know, girls don't go after boys. Boys is supposed to call you. He's supposed to take you on a date. He's, you know, so the, the boys are the initiators, and that's kind of how it's been for a long time, and that's kind of how it's been 
approached and addressed, it's like the more aggressive masculine thing to go after uh, a woman and it's it's her more feminine thing to be taken. And I think that is really destructive, or at least it's resulted in uh, that, in combination with the puritanical society we're living in, uh, that really resulted in men not being touched ever by anyone, almost ever. Uh, there are people who go without hugs for a variety of years, because not all families are super warm and huggy, so you don't necessarily can get it even from your family. They're like, what are you, a fag? You need a hug? Like, what is that? What are you, two years old? You know, so from that perspective, we have uh, men being denied touch because it's not masculine to be a human, I guess. And from the other side, we have uh, women not paying men compliments, uh, women not touching men, women not initiating, showing sexual attraction towards men or any kind of attraction. And yeah, I think talk about objectification. Basically, men are more like these just these uh, an object that, that that has no needs, it has no wants, it has no weaknesses. It's just this block of wood, you know. That's <laughs> the 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 idea of men that that is kind of I don't know, just ambient uh, in our culture is is so ridiculous. Yeah, it uh, needs to be a strong decoupling from love being a basic human need and that being associated with weakness. Uh, we unfortunately have not tackled that last element on the hierarchy of needs. We are okay with food, water, and shelter being absolutely necessary and nobody's seen as weak or less than because they need those things to live. Well, it's scientifically proven you need human touch to live. You need love. You need self actualization in that sense. You need to feel wanted by someone. doesn't matter if it's another man, if it's a group of people, if it's a woman, if it's like your partner, just somebody who wants you to live. And I think that's one of the other reasons we see a really high suicide uh, rate among men is there's very few people who uh, actually reach out to men and say, you're valuable. You as a person are valuable. A lot of times, some guys will not commit suicide because their whole family relies on them monetarily and they know that if they're gone they're gonna their fa his, his family's gonna basically not know what to do and so there's that duty and that's one of the only ways, speaking of object objectification, that's one of the only ways in which men are valued by their family sometimes even and uh, strangers and people around them is how much money they make, what do they provide monetarily because that's really the only metric that we have currently for evaluating male awesomeness um, or evaluating anything about a man. The only thing that anyone ever <laughs> basically mentions is like what's his job, how much does he make? That is it. Uh, and because of that some men will actually feel the pressure of like well I, I can't leave my family. But I think that also leads to a lot of other men being like well so I'm completely replaceable, I am an ATM machine, This is nobody actually wants me to be here. They want a provider but they don't want me. Uh, and so I think there's a lot in that um, that we need to address via realizing or, or being open with people and spreading why the information that love is a need to serve you need love to survive and I think we can really change some things by empowering women to give men compliments and to reach out and touch men and to hug men it doesn't ha I mean the reason why a lot of these hugs and uh, friend zone situations happen, men are starved for touch, they're starved for love, they're starved for attention and a lot of times smiling and talking and being best friends with a guy, that's what you do in a relationship. 
and guys don't really they're they're confused they're like what the fuck what, what is this friend zone I don't understand how can she give me all those elements of companionship but not the sex bit I don't understand uh, and a lot of that has to do from us not giving men attention and compliments and love on a platonic basis is go up to a random person and, and and hug them I mean if there's a guy walking down the street that says free hugs and there's a girl walking down the street that says free hugs who do you think is gonna get hugged more I mean it's it's very bizarre uh, and unfortunate because that's one of the issues that men actually suffer from the most fear of rejection uh, it's like the two main things that Warren Farrell was talking about last time he was on the show that women uh, have this body image issues so whenever and men have rejection issues and so whenever he has workshops he gives women tasks well he gives the men a task of like one of the hundred or something that he has that have to do with feeling objectified for your body uh, with with your thoughts and feelings and opinions as a person not mattering uh, which is what he thinks you know what is one of the things that women go through or women report going through either way which in my experience I haven't I have you gotta meet a rare, rare troglodyte who will be, oh, you lady, go in the kitchen, make me a sandwich, I don't wanna hear your mouth flapping. Like, most people, most guys are interested in hearing what a girl has to say and hearing her opinion. A lot of guys are interested in the personality uh, aspect. I don't think that's also spoken of all that often, but in my experience, most men who are not hyper-masculine, uh, we're living in a society where there's gender a atypicality everywhere. Everybody is gender atypical for the most part. Uh, there are still more like super left and super right, you know, little pockets of of people that are hyper feminine and hyper masculine, and they, you know, they're a vocal minority, but they're minority. Most men, actually, in my experience, anyway, um, caveat, uh, they want someone who they share interests with. Therefore, they need to know the personality of the person. Yeah, most men are not cavemen. I mean, yeah, okay, we 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 are shown a couple of dude bros, uh, you know, on TV, you know, the the frat boy, and a lot of times, even those that are expressing those extremely masculine ideas, it's just because they're they're exploring their own place in the world and 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 actually outputting something and trying to believe something about themselves, you know, that is uh, that they think is necessary for their you know progress and survival in society and so they're outputting this this bullshit hyper masculinized front uh, in into in the, the existence of that them the really actually having those ideas and ideals and and being a total fucking caveman that doesn't really even exist that much well the only thing I would say about that is we actually have toxic masculinity so to speak which we're describing right now uh, that is spurned on by toxic femininity in my experience it is frequently men, men don't care about other guys they don't give a fuck they want to impress women they want women to like them they want women to find them valuable and manly so that they can be chosen for reproductive rights so you have uh, especially the, the more far right the conservative movement uh, women they have very strict masculinity ideals that they want their men to, con to conform to. M men do care about the, how they're seen as masculine to, to other guys though because that make, can make the difference between whether you're getting your ass beat or uh, you know or everybody's cool and you know th no there's, there's men definitely care about the the, the masculinity pers you know uh, perception of other men. I think that might be uh, either an 
older generation thing or dangerous neighborhood thing because uh, I think there are areas uh, that are more like uh, cultural centers or intellectual centers where um, when you're among intelligentsia like in uh, in Russia and as James was saying about he's not particularly handy with tools oh well, my uh, biological father uh, he was a well he was an anesthesiologist so I mean still a STEM profession but he had a huge library he liked to read uh, he you know couldn't be bothered to take out the trash and my grandpa who is traditionally very masculine and built half of the things I've met growing up like he, he built things and made things and so he was really hands-on and my biological dad wasn't uh, he was more of intelligent person that was actually a rift between them and uh, it was you know my my biological dad was denigrated by my parents of course or grandpa grandparents um, because of being not a man of the house while for him and for my mom, who were part of you know a, a drama troupe, they you know were in the, they were doctors, but also like doing drama on the side, um, performing in plays, and generally being very artsy, creative, uh, but also like reading, uh, intelligent types. That was their thing. That was like perfectly okay within their group and within that sphere of collegiate university environment uh, to be you know a man who is valued for his knowledge as being more that's how his value is seen he's seen instead of being like a brute idiot meathead like football player well we don't have football players but like a sportsman uh, which is like an athlete instead of being a meathead athlete um, it was always associated with that athletes are meatheads and they're not as valuable as people who wear glasses and read books that was sort of a, a really big way of my upbringing and I think there are some areas in the in this country maybe in Britain other places where uh, the culture itself is a bit more shifted towards the middle towards the, like the the bi spectrum um, and it doesn't really have the same far right like being in the desert needing to make sure you're not attacked by other roving males I think that once again we're going back to the rainforest and um, desert analogy uh, there it definitely definitely culture plays a role once I left uh, secondary school and went to college I went to college in a much more sort of middle-class uh, artsy city uh, Winchester um, and you know the, the bullying and so on instantly stopped all that judgment and pressure to be more yeah more kind of macho and so on just just kind of evaporated after that so yeah I think that's definitely true yeah it seems like uh, cultures and uh, and areas that are more depressed and stressed and basically where resources are seen more um, scarce uh, th th there's interesting uh, ways in which the the scarcity of resources impacts stress hormones and how those stress hormones then impact uh, other types of hormones to make people uh, behave in certain ways. I mean, it, it, uh, neurochemistry is, is really fascinating when you when you are able to see some of these neurochemical cascades and how you can see how you know just stress itself makes people uh, that makes people more violent because they and the the way in which their brain activates it changes uh, it even changes things epigenetically it's it's just really fascinating how biology ends up 
uh, driving behavior so much. And yeah, I, I think that that is a valid that, you know, it's probably the more stressed areas in which uh, you'll find that that hyper masculine type of perspective, because basically it's it, it is more like the desert It is more you got to get you got you got to cut off everything and, you know, only go with whoever's the strongest, you know, the, 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 the whoever's the biggest meathead. That's all that matters. That artsy fartsy building tools stuff. Screw all that. We got to kill and take and because <laughs> that's the only way we're going to survive. We're in the desert here, guys. There's no resources. <laughs> and I think we are actually on a um, on, on a path of so in in the society in general, uh, looking at ways in which, or not looking at, but uh, behaving rather uh, altogether. There's kind of a sense of a desert uh, survival high mode, um, be, like atmosphere, environment. Uh, I think we, uh, through obviously outside stressors that people have no control over, like well, the crumbling economy and the impending doom of global warming and you know endangered animals and fish and water and all of those terrible things. <laughs> so maybe there is actual resource crisis coming up, but I mean it doesn't have to be. That's like one of those things. Self-fulfilling prophecies are massively big and you know as much as I have my issues with law of attraction, there are elements of law of attraction that absolutely work. Uh, putting out positive expectations makes you behave in ways and respond to things in ways that actually bring some of those positive things to light. It's just another version of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a positive one. And I think we can change uh, a lot of the building tension between some of the groups within the male and female gender um, and just the feminine onslaught, the feminist onslaught of the the kind of the male being in general. Since toxic masculinity is anything that has to do with a man, even having balls and a smaller butt that forces you to sit with your legs more spread apart, that is seen as some sort of aggression towards women. I mean, they're talking about eye rape now. That like he raped me by looking at me. Uh, as I understand that there are things that make you feel uncomfortable, but rape is a very specific fucking definition. And you can't just be using these scare tactics to basically bully men into, I don't know, what not existing, being women. I don't understand what the goal here is. Ultimately, I think we can do a lot of good by not acting like there are limited resources, by seeing positive things, or expecting positive things and thereby bringing them to life. I mean, this goes out to a lot of Mittal or people who are, or men who are considering being Mittal because, you know, the, the cards are stacked against them. Uh, the most average or even below average looking woman has more reproductive ability and more wealth uh, or more opportunities than a man has to be famous and or wealthy to get. Uh, somebody mentioned that in chat and I absolutely agree with that. At this point we have, uh, we're so hyping on body positivity and pro-female everything uh, and anti-male everything in a lot of the vocal media, especially in the, in the media um, outlets, both written and uh, spoken. Uh, so we have kind of a war on men. Um, not really sure what the point is of all that, uh, but guys do see that. They see that they're not being valued. They see that they are objectified for their money. Uh, they're not, they're told to not whine if they have, uh, if they bring up any kind of uh, male rights issues. And then they're also told, why aren't you emotional enough whenever men just have different ways of dealing with things. Uh, so there's just a lot of anti-male sort of 
rhetoric that comes out of really vocal places and people have lost their jobs over it. They've been embarrassed on national and crying on national television because they, while they should have been celebrating the fact that they landed a rocket. Uh, yeah, I think there's, there's a problem of a lack of mutual respect. Uh, I think it comes from that not being able to see that a specialization, you know, in one area leaves a deficit in another. And I think that, that, that I think that there's a kind of coming from both sides, both the hypermasculine and the hyperfeminine, both of them have a have a innate disrespect for a mental type that uh, and they do not see the value of that mental type. And, and because of this constant disrespect for those two uh, mental types. You, you have these binaries that are that are uh, constantly, you know, trying to basically say, oh, there's only one way of being that is right, and and not recognizing that there's a mutual dependency between these two ways of being. That there's these two uh, perspectives, and you know, it's it, it's like, like for instance, you know, yes, I'm completely against how uh, you know feminism, which you know, when I say feminism, of course, I'm referring to the toxic femininity where they're you know trying they want to destroy all that is male and you know there's just all the vitriol towards males but at the same time I also support the the truth that there is a lack of feminine perspective in certain aspects of science and by that I mean specifically I'm talking about the breadth processing it has to do with you know looking at things from a broader perspective meta-analysis these things are actually feminine minded women tend to be a little better at that than men do men tend to be a little more on, on the you know the getting to the details and following the linear pursuit you know uh, and so so you know I, I will actually say that there's that that there is a necessity and a lack of feminine thought in certain aspects of science, but it is a it's a delicate balance between these different things, and of course we always end we always end up getting unbalanced in one way or another. And if we could just get to a point at which we're you know it, I think that it, it, when when there is a mutual respect for the, the different ways of thinking, then there is less of that uh, fuck everything about you. Your everything about you is terrible. And I think that that maybe some of the some of those women who are very misandrist, if they could understand that there is a respect for uh, their way of being, then maybe they could start to also then respect the male way of being. I I, I don't know. I can't. <laughs> Cherry's giving me a look. Uh, but, very very skeptical look. But, but the thing is, I, I think that that's that it's it's kind of part of bringing the those those things together is understanding that there are roles that are. Um, that it's okay to be a certain way that is different. It's okay to be different because there are there's a give and take, and uh, and I think that, uh, that if they could then recognize oh, everything, you know, everything they see as negative about males, that whole you know violence and you know of uh, you know cutting things off and looking at things simplistically, and you know and and you can see from their perspective that they're trying to say, oh, you just look at everything as oversimplified. Oh, you just you know you want to remove everything, and you don't you know you, you want to uh, say only one thing is the best and you know you just want to keep moving forward and you have these simple ideas and you know that's that is that feminine perspective and they have a sort of kind of point from a certain perspective but then they then from the male perspective it's like oh yeah but except you're just going off in a million different directions and not valuing anything over anything else and so you're completely incapable of moving forward there's nothing your system will just implode on itself because of overhead and not actually picking one thing to go with and one thing that's better than anything else and so you know there, there if there is a 
I don't know. I, I think that if we can have that mutual respect and understanding of these two different perspectives, that, that perhaps a little a bit of the uh, of this hatred that's starting to you know tear us apart can start to go away. I don't know. I would agree with that, uh, having that sort of approach, or rather communicating that on a larger societal level uh, would actually help, but my skeptical look had to do with um, the fact that the more rabid, the 3.0 feminists, the radical feminists specifically, see any kind of show of respect or any kind of capitulation as weakness, and they pound even harder. Um, so that's one of the ways in which it ha would have to be done on a global level. But I also think that we have a lot of emphasis placed on empathizing with women, on thinking about female troubles, their perspectives. Uh, that's a really huge thing in our society for men and women. Men, specifically, are conditioned in that way. Because I was about to say that what we can do to move on from this nastiness is to have um, empathy coupled with reason. And in that way, both genders should be able to, or at least the, the, the female, the Kali Yuga can, can end, the, the female raging Kali monster that is, you know, part of it is in, in, in the, the toxic rabbit feminism, uh, that thing may be pacified uh, if we kind of move on with empathy and reason. However, we have a tremendous amount of empathy towards women as it is. I'm not saying to stop it, I'm just saying it's there. We're doing it. Uh, it's been on everybody's mind for the longest time ever. Uh, all outlets are talking about women and needs of women and desires of women. What women want was like 30 years ago, and they were already making stuff about that. Uh, or 40. I don't even know how long it's been. But where is the same amount of emphasis on empathy with men? So... You make a very good point. It, it, it's true that, that uh, maybe maybe that will help is, is pointing out the ways in which men have been empathizing with the, the female perspective, how there has been concessions made. You know, maybe we can just point that out to these to the feminists and say, "Look, where are your concessions? Where is the meeting in the middle? Where where are you going and saying, hey, this is what I see is valuable about men because I don't see your way of valuing men. You see our way of valuing women.'" and we don't see your way of valuing men. I mean, especially since the biggest part uh, of what feminism, kind of how the rabid toxic feminism tries to cover itself is by saying, hey, look at the dictionary definition and look at all these reasonable people who just want everyone to be happy. They're basically egalitarians. But hey, no, that's feminism. Feminism is for equality. So if people are sticking to those guns as feminists, that is a brilliant way of being like, where is your... Why are you not doing your part? I We've been doing our part as men. Look, there's all these 10,000 ways in which we empathize and we understand. And soldiers put on shoes that are high-heeled shoes for fuck's sake. They had to spray paint them red and wear them. It's, it's mind-boggling, but we have all these empathy exercises um, that have to do with women, and we don't have any empathy exercises that have to do with men. And for people who stick with feminism is equality movement idea, uh, they need to be told that. It's like, where, where is your half? What, what are you doing? Um, now, this brought me back to something that we got cut off in the middle of, but we're talking about Warren Farrell. He has the, the two things um, that he was doing for women uh, is like objectification is a big deal. So he was giving guys tasks that would make them feel um, like they were objectified like a woman would. So they kind of got to experience the female experience. And for men, what the women uh, were given for like the male experience to empathize with that, they were given one of 150 um, 
rejection scenarios because dealing with rejection is one of the biggest things that men actually have to face all the time and bringing you know back around to how we can help men how as women uh, as egalitarian women people uh, women specifically specifically women I'm calling out to you girls uh, women who want to bring about equality of the genders or want to be equal to both in terms of love and empathy and appreciation what we can start doing is literally giving men physical attention and approaching them first it doesn't matter for what or how or where just try to reduce your criticism of men I, I mean it'll it you'll be amazed at how well that'll work for a variety of things in your life and their life and they also won't fuck shit up because <laughs> that's like one of the fears right you like you have to constantly criticize men because they don't know what they're doing they're stupid and us women are much smarter I mean <laughs> look at that uh, dad husband who's you know from a commercial who's stuck in the blinds trying to figure out how the air conditioning works like the, we're inundated with criticism of men, and we are forbidden from criticizing women and I think we just need to chill the fuck out on criticizing men and maybe like look inward or maybe not look anywhere but try to just be happy and move on and make somebody else's life happy by just like smiling and being pleasant I don't know it's just a fucking thought but uh, I think uh, I went back to this point to finish off the, the Warren Farrell thing I realized was left in the middle of that uh, but going back to what uh, feminism if people who believe that feminism is an equality movement you can absolutely tell them um, look where men are doing our part where's your part where are you trying to cut men slack where are you trying to experience the male experience where are you listing things that hurt men or that men experience differently or their feelings or their experiences where is that show me that uh, it doesn't happen anywhere except in the men's rights movement and feminism tries to say that it helps men too well how show me where yeah where is the empathy and and, and that's really what men are are missing is you know where where is that empathy that uh, that's supposed to be there exactly but i i uh, think if the feminist group if we're talking about the 3.0 web warriors, the social injustice warriors, uh, a lot of them have adopted Dworkin's ideas and some other uh, anti-sex bigots ideas that have to do with men being bad, period. It doesn't, uh, to them, it, that's not going to help that it's like men are being empathetic. They're like, so what? The patriarchy, of course they should be empathetic. Why should we give any attention to any male stories? Because the patriarchy, like everything ever always is about men and their privilege. So why would we ever need to show that from our camp? And those are the two different types of, of feminists that you, you, know, you often deal with. And the majority is actually people who believe feminism is equality. They're just they're trying to do good they're coming from a good place and they're like oh a feminism everything that's good and bright in the world that cares about people I'll sign up to that uh, but they don't actually see what feminism in its current iteration is doing and the hate and the vitriol towards men specifically that is being spewed and so the other small vocal minority they are um, different mentally I think <laughs> I think we need to have a more um, I don't know if uh, deep brainwashing is, is the right thing, but it's uh, re-education, that's the word, uh, re-education of their basic approach towards humans. I think what we're dealing with, uh, of course, cluster B personalities are very common among the more uh, vocal, dramatic, um, just out of their fucking minds, uh, feminists on the internet, um, people who clearly have mental disorders, but I think there's a, a 
wider or more general level of a mental disorder that uh, women, I think, suffer from a lot more than men, but it's starting to creep in there too uh, because of the way we raise our children. Um, there is a lack of understanding that other people are real and that they have feelings and they're just like you. That whole, that the empathy process uh, is uh, something that is very lacking, uh, I think, in uh, people. I mean, women do care about emotions uh, in a lot of ways and they will stay quiet at times to not rile the group. So they do have uh, more like uh, communal conformist sort of behaviors that have to do with group cohesion. But um, I think that also leads to this 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 issue that that I'm discussing. And perhaps that's also why it is that it seems that the larger there's many more uh, of the general populace of women listening to those small radical outliers than there are the general populace of men listening to the small radical outliers within our group. In other words, when when a guy comes and comes forward and says some you know really sexist things you know most men are you know just they, they scoff at it and whereas when uh, you know within the female group when you have that radical that says some really sexist things women are like oh yeah yeah you know so it's like uh, you know maybe maybe that's that's part of the mechanism uh, you know i don't know but they you know maybe we need to point that out somehow that's like hey you know we're not listening to our outliers why are you listening to your outliers yeah, at the same time, anyone involved in men's issues who says anything outrageous gets boosted, you know, gets blasted out to everybody, and the or more people. radical, extreme feminist gets kind of shushed up and, and pushed down. Well, even people who aren't men's rights activists, who specifically claim they're not men's rights activists, are still being written about as men's rights activists. Like Christopher Nolan, whatever, is a prime example. Um, he specifically said he hates the men's right movement. He, he thinks they're a bunch of pussy faggots and uh, he doesn't want to be associated with them. And he advocated for, you know, like beating women or whatever in some context. And there were newspapers uh, or newspapers on the internet as they are nowadays uh, coming out with uh, men's rights activist says we should kill women. Are you really? Are we back to the yellow page, like yellow papers? Or this is the 40s? Like what is happening? What's with the clickbaits, yo? But I would like to wrap up, I guess, with a um, manage ways of managing stress. Um, we've elucidated some things here that I think we can do uh, as women, specifically on the societal level, uh, or as men as well, um, that can actually help bring about a a calming of of this, like the feminist beast, um, and try to like not get people sucked into its maw, and maybe like, hey. I know it's hard to tell people to do some research for themselves. That's not going to fucking happen. They're going to go to a dictionary. It says, oh, look, it says it's an equality movement. I was right all along. And, uh, of course, the no true Scotsman fallacy is something that comes out whenever they are presented with evidence of women that are feminists being extremely rabid. And they're like, oh, that wasn't a true feminist. That was just a random person. It's like, yes, except you also didn't look at the literally 20 other pages of all the other not real feminists talking about the exact same thing. So... You know, it is. It can be stressful. It's very difficult. Um, I think for a lot of men who are on the verge of that guitar thing, uh, men going their own way, um, they see the cards stacked against them. It, it's really fucking stressful. It sucks. Um, so I would advocate uh, 
law of attraction. Do some positive thinking. It'll do wonders for you. Um, and uh, exercise. But um, th those are just my, my thoughts. Here are some um, that have to do with uh, studies and uh, surveys of people um, who, men and women, who mention how they manage uh, their stress. So uh, women are far more likely than men to say that they read to manage stress. And uh, they, in general, report more stress management activities that connect them with other people, like spending time with friends and family and uh, going to church or religious services. So for women being in communal um, groups or reading, apparently, uh, really helps them relax and, and take the stress away. Un unless, unfortunately, you're one of those gender atypical women for whom communities and groups is the source of stress. <laughs> but um, men are more likely than women to say they play sports uh, as a way of managing stress. So uh, they're also more likely than women to say that they don't do anything to manage stress. Uh, once again, we have an undeveloped, underdeveloped rather, field of male depression, male anxiety, male stress. Uh, men have different ways of coping with things, as we see just so far. Uh, and exercise, physical activity, getting some of that you know, blood flowing, some of that adrenaline, um, actually will boost testosterone levels. It'll help you deal with um, some of that emotional slump that comes from having lower testosterone. So uh, exercise, sports, whatever, it's a great thing uh, to do. And it is also, if you notice, a generally communal activity. There are very few sports, um, other than swimming, I guess, and like maybe golf, but there's very few sports that you are not in a group with other men. And I think that's another thing that we really need to advocate very strongly for, the return of male-only spaces. Uh, I think we have female-only spaces, therefore, where are our male-only spaces? Men need them just as much as women need them. Uh, so another thing uh, is that significantly more women um, than men exercise uh, only once a week or less. So. Um, and when they don't exercise more often, they're, they're likely to say more than men. If one asks, like, why don't you exercise more often? Um, they're likely to say that it's because they feel tired. So there seems to be kind of a, a female uh, approach to not really pushing themselves physically. Uh, so they're like, well, well, you know, I'll only exercise once a week. I don't really care. I don't need it. And then why don't I exercise more? Oh, I'm just tired, you know. Like it's kind of not necessarily a babying uh, behavior, but there is kind of a self, lack, not lack of self-discipline. I'm, I'm using harsh words, but you know what I'm trying to express. That is kind of a, a, a taking care of self uh, to not push through extreme physical uh, issues or, you know, exercise. Uh, and when you feel tired, you're like, oh, well, I'll just not do anything because I feel kind of tired today. While men don't have the same kind of experiences, they do push themselves to go out and exercise. And they, when they're too tired, well, tough shit. Like, you're too tired all the time, but you have to get up and fight for the family anyway. So, you know, it's, it's something that I think we're seeing more among women uh, or will start seeing uh, because of how, you know, just shitty the economy is getting and that people in America now are having to work two or three jobs to, like, just make ends meet. Single mothers, single fathers, uh, often actually both parents uh, having a job that takes them away all day and people are extremely underslept, extremely tired, uh, but men still have this kind of um, drive to push through physical tiredness in order to achieve 
the desired result, while women seem to uh, kind of coddle themselves physically, but uh, they perhaps uh, push themselves more emotionally, um, or rather react to their own emotions more and realize that they might be depressed, that they might have a problem, while men just tend to kind of like shut those things away and, and put them aside emotionally and not really push through perhaps the emotional pain. So I think uh, we've been conditioned or just naturally probably are naturally that way and then also develop systems around it that conditioned it into a feedback loop where we have women um, being kind of like in the emotional, pushing through emotionally in a variety of ways so they have hires, higher highs and lower lows of emotion while men push themselves physically but kind of neglect um, their emotional side and women neglect their physical side. Now, uh, we also have here that men, um, well, while both genders uh, cite lack of willpower as the very first barrier to change, uh, women are more likely than men to cite lack of willpower as a barrier preventing them from making a lifestyle or behavior change recommended by a healthcare provider. So this is, I, I didn't read these beforehand, I mean, this feeds right into what I was just saying, that it, it does seem to be a bit of a coddling on the female side of themselves uh, to not push through physical aspects or maybe they're, you know, just more feminine and, and don't, don't have that really strong linear drive to accomplish uh, something even if it will mean that your health will suffer. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Um, and women are far more likely than I meant to say they lack, uh, that lack of willpower also has prevented them from changing their eating habits. So often here we keep seeing uh, this idea of willpower that women think that they don't have or they cite that as evidence of why they're not doing something that a doctor prescribed them or that'll change their the way they look etc while men actually do take action and so I think a lot of that has to do with the ways in which uh, men and women are treated in society and their kind of roles or their values and um, also what they tend to do and as we were talking about in the very beginning men have that hunting going after that thing uh, drive while women have like sitting around and chatting with friends and grooming as part of you know society building uh, on that front so physicality isn't necessarily as important but we can see here that uh, a lot of that can feed into well this bo body positivity which I'm all for body positivity if it goes always <laughs> if it go if it's about healthy natural bigger smaller whatever if it's within healthy limits I'm all for body positivity for both men and women, uh, big-breasted women, small-breasted women, all of them. Uh, but a lot of times this word body positivity is being used in association with off, not often but frequently morbidly obese people, uh, people who have developed sleep apneas and uh, that they like you can't breathe when they're sleeping uh, because of their weight. Uh, there's severely restricting their heart and a variety of like variety of health issues. Um, it seems like this willpower idea that's associated with um, men, I guess, more than women, at least self-reportedly, uh, it seems that feeds into this uh, potential lack of exercising even for health reasons. Uh, so, I mean, what, what do you guys think we can do to help women have more willpower or think of something uh, as willpower that they might not be thinking of before, how to approach that whole thing for their health, and also I think it's important to have the sort of willpower that we're talking about here in order to help other people, including men, including other women, and just to be a better freaking person. I think women do need more willpower. I think as a society we do baby uh, 
girls and, and women and we do cut them a lot of slack and we tell them to, oh, it's okay, take the day off, you've had such a rough time, but nobody pays attention to what men are doing, so why aren't we being equal in doling out of, you know, pats on the back and, and, and relaxation, like, tickets to the spa? Well, I, I think part of the problem with the body positivity thing is that there's a, there's a, a difference between seeing yourself as a work in progress or seeing yourself as just a thing that's already complete and good as it, <clears throat> as it is. And I don't think that, uh, I think that, that we need to recapture the idea of being a work in progress and being okay with not, uh, not being done, not being finished, not being perfect. Uh, because that's what they're trying to say with body positivity is you're perfect as you are. And that's just not true. Uh, but you know, at the same time, what is wrong with just like when we were children, we had things to improve and that no way limited our value. Uh, and that we need to return to that childlike perspective that of course you're a work in progress. Of course you're not absolutely perfect. Of course you have things that you want to improve and you need to be okay with that so long as you're taking action to move in that direction. You shouldn't be okay with it if you're not taking any action to move in that direction because that's an unhealthy way of being. If you're not doing something to move forward and to make your life better and, and and you know, make yourself healthier. Then you are not. That's that's not a good way of being. It is it is good to be satisfied with the fact that you're a work in progress. It is good to be satisfied with that you're doing what you can, and that you're that you're you know that you, knowing that you have limitations and trying to work within them, and and being satisfied that that there are things that have held you back and and, and have put you in the position that you're in, and, uh, and and you should be happy with that and understand it. But at the same time, also recognize that it perhaps is not the best that it could be. Maybe it's it's the best that you can do because of limitations. That's fine, whatever. But at the same time, you, it, it, this idea that body positivity is it should be like this acceptance, complete acceptance of exactly as it is when you're morbidly obese and you're sick and you're you know unhealthy. That that that's just, that's just a a very it's a regressive viewpoint. It is it is uh, making it is making someone give up basically by saying, oh, there's nothing you can do. You're done. You're finished. You're a finished work. You're perfect as you are. No, you're not. Nobody's a, fin a finished work. Everybody is continuing to work on themselves because that is the state of being. When you're green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're rotten. And so you have to be able to, if you can believe in your in that progress, believe in your efforts, believe in that you'll continue to improve your efforts, you'll continue to try new strategies, you'll continue to learn new things, you'll continue to grow. If you can believe in that, and that is as the perfect state, that that ever-changing state is the only perfect that really exists, that's the only finish that could ever exist, is that constant state of, of change, that constant state of a, a, adaptation, that constant search for, for you know, Im improvement uh, that is not an all-consuming search, but a satisfaction with doing what you can. Yeah, I think that's that in combination with, um, it basically requires a balance. Uh, you know, we're not saying obsessively go after every single thing, and we're also saying don't just sit on your ass. Like, Think about your life. Think about yourself as a person. Think about your future. Think about who who am I? What am I doing here? And not in a existential angst sort of way, but in a practical way. Like, okay, well, this is my life. This is what I'm doing. These are things I might want to do. What do I need to achieve them? I mean, accept a more masculine way of thinking in that sense, because we do also need a balance. 
towards the more masculine way of thinking in terms of uh, being effectual and reasonable, uh, logical, and being able to follow through with goals uh, and not just sort of live in this the world of emotion and words, but like actually accomplish some things. And I think because of having gender um, atypical women uh, a lot more out there uh, and and in public eye too, uh, we get to see women doing this, taking the active role. And uh, my most inspiration, most inspirational inspirational thing to me is seeing women who refuse to be infantilized and victimized by feminism. Women who say, no, I am not a victim. I am a person who may have gone through some things, but so does everybody else. This kind of empathy towards humanity and a level of understanding your place in the world and not being kind of a in a narcissistic cloud uh, that all children uh, you know, at some point are in. I think uh, a lot of what feminism teaches is to remain in that infantilized cloud. And I think that is, uh, as somebody in chat mentioned, that is one of the biggest things I think we can do is uh, to help women kind of get better at things they clearly want to get better at, but they just don't think they have the willpower uh, to do it. And also, in the same breath, to kind of get rid of ideas that are holding them back, feminism is one of those ideas. It's an idea that you are not in control of your life, that everything is done to you all the time, and men are doing the doing, and women have no doing abilities, and you're just uh, supposed to sit there and take it. Uh, that's your role as a woman. Um, of course, they decry that we need to change that, but they don't say anything other than that. And that really brings me to you know one of the, the greatest things that I took away from uh, Mother Teresa's teachings um, is that she said if you invite me to an anti-war rally I will never come invite me to a pro-peace rally and I'll be there and that really elucidates the law of attraction as I see it the the, po the power of positive thinking the fulfilling a self-fulfilling prophecy in in a positive spectrum um, be pro stuff <laughs> instead of anti stuff uh, and since feminism a lot of times focuses on nothing but negativity it reiterates all these negative ways of viewing women that are not true provably not true but they intentionally blind themselves to reason and to any kind of ability to back away from their point they don't want to have a debate it is their god-given truth that this is reality and it's a very immature narcissistic way of looking at the world and I would really like to see us as a society as humans uh, both men and women who experience the sort of narcissistic cloud situation where uh, they externalize all the problems onto others it's like obviously the world around you has an effect on you but what are you gonna accomplish blaming the world like that's not going to actually give you a strategy of improving your life so yes you can look at what happened and how you could possibly avoid that in the future but a lot of times in life we're just bumping into each other at high speeds or low speeds or whatever people are just being and flailing it's like reality is a big fucking mosh pit and everyone is just doing their thing so um, I think we need to be aware of that and that our experience as a woman, as a feminist, as whoever you are, that your experience is not special. You're not a special snowflake, but you are, but you're not. Because there's like 7 billion other people that are going literally through the same stuff. And they also, f the thing is, they feel the same way about reality <laughs> that you do. And if that doesn't give you some modicum of empathy and the golden, you know, use the golden rule. I mean, feminists, please, can we just use the golden rule? Treat people how you want to be treated. 
that's it. That's it. I think if we just give people that little mental exercise of like, well, would your gender like to be treated this way? Um, I think that might start to change things. But we need to be active and vocal. And it's hard because social punishment is the number one thing that is going to happen. And it's fucking scary because to our primate brain, it means we are being removed from the group. Uh, therefore, there's no shelter, there's no protection, and no breeding opportunities. That means death. So your genes are like, oh, my God, no, I don't want to die. You're like, no, calm down, instincts. We're living in a different world, different environment. We're overpopulated anyway, so like, who cares if you have kids or not? You're not going to fucking die. <laughs> not having kids does not equal like death anymore. Uh, you can live on and have a legacy in a variety of other ways um, beyond, beyond just simply existing. Um, so if we can use that golden rule and apply that to people uh, and try to tell them, about being equal and empathetic and good to each other, regardless of labels. Forget feminism, MRA, like, I don't even care. Like, well, I do care about MRA, but point is just try to be, forget labels, try to level with people because people react to labels. They put up walls whenever they see a particular label. Uh, so you have to approach them as another human and some people will not be human and you just have to move on and be like all right I'll find someone else but you have to brave that social pain and it is fucking hard but one of the beauties of having integrity and a strong voice and refusing to bend under social pressure is that you're a beacon you will attract light you are light I mean you will attract other light you will attract other people um, those who are doubting will see your stance and go, oh wow, if he can do it, maybe I can too. And they will join over. Or people who are not doubting and are still in their mind control throes of feminism uh, or you know, thinking that it's some sort of equal thing, they will see your, your stoic stance and they'll be like, well, why, why is he so sure about this? Like Maybe I need to research and look into this. That alone, being an example uh, and talking out and speaking out and not caring about social repercussions as long as you're doing it from a humane, kind, empathetic fucking perspective, don't go being an asshole, all right? But if you come at it from that perspective, people will get a lot more interested in the topic rather than saying feminism is evil, even though it is. But a lot of people shut off their brains because uh, they've associated feminism with something good and pure, and you're just a boogeyman to them. You suddenly become a faceless thing. You've stressed them. You've you know you've turned them into, you know so. That would be my advice on how to deal with feminism. And um, if anyone else has anything to add about dealing with stress or dealing with uh, feminist ideas, if that is a big part of stress in your life, um, or maybe you know if Kat wants to weigh in on something that she would like to see as being someone who's not necessarily partial to the feminist MRA situation, I, I would love to hear that as our, uh, we wrap up here. Well, uh, instead of having radio silence, uh, I can uh, mention I've got two two studies here that uh, I, I guess we could put somewhere in the show comments or something just to just to kind of uh, uh, have some of that perspective on. Like I've got a study on lesions in the medial preoptic area and bed nucleus of striata, stria terminalis. Anyway, it's basically the the, the effects of uh, copulatory behavior in uh, in in animals and then how uh, then I've got a second study that shows that uh, social defeat stress actually impacts that area of the brain so basically I'm just there's, there's two studies that kind of you know to, to kind of bring back that whole stress and sexuality and how uh, these things are are interconnected and how uh, basically by um, 
you know, forcing men to be less sexual or the, uh, basically by, by, by stressing men in a certain way and like expecting that to be a, um, uh, expecting men to be less sexual. I, I don't know. I think that that's a, that's basically you're, you're asking them to be in a less healthy, uh, state. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of a, uh, I think that that's, that's a constant, uh, but at the same time, I guess that that's not directly related to what I'm saying here, which is the, just basically how social defeat stress does actually impact, um, our sexuality in a way that, that makes, um, makes for more feminized behaviors. Uh, like specifically you can, you can actually, uh, force animals into uh, a feminine perspective. And so I think there's kind of a direct forcing of men into, uh, the more feminine role. Uh, and that's uh, basically eliminating the masculine. There's kind of, we've got kind of got systems that are in place now, social systems that are kind of collapsing and destroying everything that is masculine instead of, um, you know, uh, respecting it and, uh, and valuing it. So anyhow, I, those, those two studies should, it should be something interesting for anyone who wants to, you know, do some reading afterwards or something. But, you know, as people uh, who deal with depression and stress, like both you, James and Kat, um, what would be your parting words to, uh, people who might be dealing with some of the same stuff? Oh, that's a big, <laughs> big ask. Um, avail yourself of the help that is out there. Um, often it's inadequate, often it's difficult to get, but it, it is out there. Um, force yourself, despite your misgivings, to confide in people. Start with the ones that you are more certain you can you can trust, and then that will help you build your build your confidence for other things. Um, don't be too afraid of the pills. I mean, I know I gave a lot of horror stories about them, but it's absolutely not my intention to to put people off them. They they can help, but it's got to be in concert with other things. Um, for guys in particular, I think it really helps us to have ideas of goals, things we can we can accomplish to help to help deal with what's going on with with our stress and with our depression so it can be helpful to make a big list of everything that you can think of that's causing you stress in your life or things that are, are making you down I mean depression doesn't really work like that but the, the more things you could take out of your life or modify that are causing you trouble the better and I think for men having something yeah something to work on a, a goal um, really, really helps. It gives you something, something to to fixate upon. So that that those would be the kind of things that I would suggest. But yeah, ev everyone's different. You've got to find out what works for you. So you've got to experiment in your own life and with with your own mind. And that's that's ultimately the best the best advice is to find what works for you and do it. Um, I agree with James. I should have gone first. He's way more eloquent than I am. But um. Yeah, you know, loneliness is one of, if not the highest cause of suicide. So, you know, don't be afraid to talk to someone, to find someone that you can confide in and, and share with. Um, we're pack animals. We're not meant to go through life alone. So don't let yourself do that. And also, yeah, don't don't be afraid of the drugs. They can be very, very helpful. Make sure you find someone you know, a, a professional, a doctor that you can talk to who will listen to you. Um, don't don't get my psychiatrist who 
you're in for 30 seconds and go home. Um, and definitely have a goal. I worked with one therapist who told me if the only thing you do for the day is get up and put some makeup on, do that. And it's true that just doing that, I mean, once you're ready, it's a lot easier to tackle the next thing. So set a goal and then see what happens from there. Usually once you tackle the first goal, it's much easier to tackle the second goal. Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the going after goals is a, uh, a really um, uh, good thing to do. I mean, a lot of times, like for instance, I, I like to do things with my hands, uh, make, making small things or uh, what have you. But uh, one of the things that, that I felt, if, you, if you're wanting to avoid the drugs as much as possible, uh, one of the, the, probably the best thing you can do is get out there and, and exercise. And, uh, and it's really... Um, some of the best gains are seen in when you stress yourself uh, in exercise. Now, of course, don't, don't if you you have some weight issues or anything like that, you don't want to you know overstress your heart first time you go out there. I know sometimes as guys we tend to just like you know oh, maybe I can maybe I can fit like three years of exercise into one routine, you know, <laughs> but, no, you know work up to it. But uh, getting out there and, and just running is uh, one of the things that uh, is. Uh, personally help me um i've got some chronic pain issues and things like that that are uh that are difficult and they, uh going going through the um uh the running and stuff that that, that that really does a lot and then uh, uh there's a lot of nutritional things that can uh, help with depression as well just uh getting into uh getting into nutrition can really make a big difference uh understanding the nutrition from a uh um from a scientific standpoint, like for instance, the the Oregon University website, uh, Linus Pauling uh, Micronutrient Information Center, is a great place to start if you want to learn about you know the science behind nutrition. Uh, just reading through uh, their articles will really give you a good perspective. And a lot of those things you, you'll find. It, what's interesting is is there are a lot of different uh, micronutrients that can really impact your mental health. Like uh, just having the right uh, magnesium and calcium balance can be can be a factor. Um, there's uh, of course, the, some of the B vitamins really huge factor in in mental health. Um, like for instance, just taking just supplementing niacin can make a make a difference in some people. Um, so if, learning about uh, about those things, then there's also um, uh, getting the right kinds of fats, uh, you know, uh, like with uh, with coconut oil is a uh, is a good way to. Um, um, if, if you're uh, if you're trying to do things through nutrition, look, you know, look into coconut oil. It really it, it does come down to, um, you know, self educating and uh, and knowing and, and testing what's going to work for you. But uh, but yeah, I can't. The the one thing that is when you can't do anything else, um, I really recommend heat therapy. Heat therapy is when you can uh, push into that area where you start to feel anxious and uh, with heat and have to you have to take you know deep breaths and and uh and drink a, a lot of water and things like that that actually there's there's things called heat shock proteins there's uh release of kappa opioids there's a, a wide variety of systems that are hit by just uh, heat therapy and that's one of the things that that almost anyone can do when you can't do anything else you can't get out there and exercise you can't you know uh get you get your hands on the the you know the things that you that you need in the way of uh, health, food, etc. One thing you can do is is get into a hot 
uh, tub and, uh, and, and work on that heat stress uh, on a regular basis. And that can make a really, really huge difference in your, uh, in your mental outlook. It takes roughly about a week for it to, to have a, a significant impact that you can see. So don't give up on it immediately. You're not going to notice it, you know, within the first day. Uh, but if you can uh, push past the, your, your um, stress level in a, in a heat therapy um, thing, you will see some, some changes in your, in your drive and your ability to move forward, your ability to, uh, to accomplish and your overall, uh, satisfaction and outlook on life. And so, uh, that would be, um, uh, my recommendations on that. And then, and I think that, you know, going back to trying to pull it back to the sexuality aspect, I think that, that the, one, one of the things that, that when you can get those systems right, um, you, you actually will see a, a difference in sexuality as well. In other words, there, they, it's, uh, don't let anybody tell you that uh, that sexuality is is unhealthy. Uh, and that's, that's something that, that's kind of been part of our um, uh, our whole uh, culture's drive in so many different ways is to to drop shame on it. Whereas you know they find that uh, that when you're still within a uh, when your body believes that you're you're still a, a viable breeding individual. Uh, that means that you're, you know, that, that genetically speaking, in other words, if you look at it from like the selfish gene kind of perspective, that that is that, that says to your genes that you are still a contributing factor that needs to be kept. You're not something that needs to be gotten rid of. Uh, and so you, you'll find that there are a lot of different uh, ties between um, other health aspects uh, and your uh, your libido. In other words, when one, one set of health is down, the libido is down. And so, you know, whenever whenever people are trying to make you ashamed of libido, uh, basically they're trying to make you ashamed of being healthy. And so don't buy into that crap. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess that's that's all I've got. Well, that's great. Uh, speaking of uh, baths, I'm going to go take one myself in just a little bit. Uh, but before I sign off, uh, one quick thing that was mentioned in chat, which I'm really glad you guys brought this up, uh, in terms of nutrition, yes, coconut oil was mentioned. Uh, the number one thing I would say is uh, get rid of your sugar if you can. Um, if you can substitute uh, refined sugar with fruit, honey, stevia, any of those, stevia especially if you have any kind of inclination for diabetes, it is freaking amazing. Uh, please do that. But what is even more important to our conversation on depression specifically is probiotics. The gut bacteria, uh, the gut situation in general is uh, fascinatingly involved with your mental state. You wouldn't think that your gut has anything to do with it, but you know, the dwarves, they got it right. Like you need to just state a while after eating, you got to make sure your gut does the thing. Uh, it's from a Salvatore book. But uh, anyway, uh, it's really, really important to make sure that you have the right flora and fauna, fa fauna, which it's not really. Fauna is just mainly, oh well, wait. Yeah, it's flora and fauna. Well, what are bacteria, though, is the question. Are bacteria flora or are they fauna? But anyway, it's a tangent. Um, we have a lot of bacteria in the gut that are actually really helpful for pulling uh, nutrients and vitamins out of your food, little of it that there is in your food. Uh, but it is also very important for outgoing behavior. They've actually done studies uh, on rats uh, who had like all of their bacteria from the gut removed entirely. Uh, so they had no biodome there, uh, and they would sit in the corner uh, not go out, uh, avoid bright spots, they would just sit in darkness, uh, you're basically your basic depressed archetype, uh, while having healthy bacteria in your stomach actually allowed those mice to explore, go out in openly lit areas, basically be a lot more adventurous and outgoing. So in that sense, we sort of see a parallel between depression 
and you know happiness in that sense. Uh, you'll at least be able to go out more because that's one of the biggest problems of depression. You you can't make yourself do anything. Um, so getting proper bacteria in your gut with using probiotics is extremely important. What I would recommend is, uh, once again, stay away from the sugar because that helps you breed candida yeast, which is not a helpful uh, bacteria at all. Um, in fact, it's one of its byproducts is like wood alcohol or something. Uh, but what you can do is take plain yogurt. Uh, and uh, it doesn't, I don't think it matters what kind of plain yogurt it is, like Greek or like whatever. Usually there is um, some Lactobacillus. Anyway, one of those uh, bacteria that uh, has to. They used to make Acidophilus uh, yogurt, so you could get that. I don't think they do it anymore. They also mix it with sugar, which is just stupid. But you can. Uh, I would recommend getting plain yogurt. Doesn't matter what kind it is, and you can put some fruits in there to sweeten it up if it's like too much, or some honey. That's actually a really neat combination: plain yogurt and honey mix. Whatever you can do to get some of that plain yogurt. Uh, if that doesn't work, you can try a liquidier, uh, drinkable version of yogurt that is not quite as sour. Um, what we know, what we know in Russia as kefir, and you can actually find that in America now <laughs> at like your local whatever. Uh, you can go to the uh, milk yogurt kind of section, and there'll be these thingies um, called kefir. So that's full of probiotics. And another thing, if you just can't stand the sour thing, if you have like one of those systems that you you just can't eat those, um, I would recommend if you have it um, in your stores, so you, or you could buy it online maybe from, uh, well, I don't know if the store that you don't have in your city will deliver to your city. So never mind about the online thing, but there are places you can get Good Belly. And it is a name of juice, uh, type, brand, whatever. And I bet you could uh, Google that shit. And uh, uh, Good Belly is a variety of fruit uh, drinks, juice type situations, but it's basically fermented juice. So they have a variety of flavors, and you don't have to, you know, lock yourself to the plain white kefir or, or you know, yogurt. You can go ahead and get some Good Belly, and that'll be super amazing and delicious. Um, and also, once in a while, taking some Pepto Bismol just for shits and giggles uh, will also help out uh, your overall uh, funguses and other possible things that are encroaching on the, on the healthy bacteria. So those are all the things I would recommend. Do all of them if you can. Uh, do some of them. Also make sure you have fiber. It is extremely important. There's been research recently that came out that high fiber diet lead to proper gut microbes. Low fiber diet com like practically completely depletes you of the appropriate gut bacteria and damage is partially irreversible. So you will lose something a little bit permanently um, if you maintain a low uh, fiber diet. So high fiber diet, kefir, plain yogurt, or good belly, any kind of, you can get probiotics and pills uh, like Lacidophilus, Acidobacillus, I think I said those up. Yeah, I said those right, okay. Um, <laughs> some other ones, uh, you could, did I say it wrong? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that was right, but uh, I was just gonna say, uh, you know, uh, kind of as an aside to this, something that recently came out was there's something called a human milk uh, oligosaccharides, I think that's how it's pronounced. Uh, basically, it's a type of um, uh, glycan that is found in uh, breast milk that is not digestible by the, the baby. 
but it is specifically made for uh, helping the gut uh, flora and fauna to uh, to develop. And then in addition to that, another thing that recently came out is uh, microRNAs, which are part of the non-coding DNA that actually has a function in uh, that used to be you know considered junk DNA. Uh, one of the uh, some of the microRNAs in, in our genes are specifically for managing the gut biome and uh, re reading about the gut biome is, is like it's really important because one of the things you find out is we have more DNA of other creatures that make up our total self than our own DNA so uh, it, it's a really really huge part of our health and well-being so yeah that's all I got to say so drink um, breast milk Yes, drink breast milk. There you go. If you got a problem with your gut biome, you just need some breast milk. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> to bring it back around to sexuality, um, get them titties in your mouth, all right? <laughs> That'll cure everything. Just get, get you some, some titties, and it'll all be good. Finally, a diet I want to follow. There you go. <laughs> no crash diets on that one. Um, so that's it. We're going to leave you with uh, with titties in your mouth. And, and thank you for uh, joining us for our second Cherry Stem show. And let me know in the comments below once they become available if you would like us to get into a lot more technical detail. Not really. Um, do you just hate it? Do you love it? Tell us all about it. And uh, I'll try to cater some of the show topics uh, and the depth of which we go into things. Um, to your liking, but ultimately it's our damn show, and we like to talk about nerdy things. So there's probably going to be a lot of nerdy things happening. So all right, thank you guys very much. Thank you. Hey, to you want to do some uh, like shilling? Like for instance, I uh, need to cat uh, needs to to shill, and uh, those are our guests, etc. Yes, I forgot that's a thing. Um, I'm just so used to not hosting the shows that somebody else takes care of the shilling. It's terminology we use, Kat. It's a, whatever we're basically uh, talking about your uh, personal projects and things like that where people can look you up, etc. So, uh, yeah, if you want to uh, give your uh, website, Kat, um, then uh, the listeners can look you up. Which is weird that it's shilling because isn't that, like, isn't the definition of a shill... Like, yeah, uh, it's really not a good word. It's just it, it's something within the bunny, honey badgers. We use that word, but it's really not the right way to use that word. <laughs> so yes, tell us stuff. Um, well, you can find me on Twitter at Kitty Curiosity. That's Curiosity with a K. Or I guess you can just type in Catanomia. Pretty sure that also works and comes up. Um, you can find me online at CatanomiaXXX.com. And I'm a nerdy sex worker, kind of like Anna Cherry. Very true. And we have sex work together. So you guys could yes. like check out her site or uh, AnnaCherry.com for um, videos that we've done, and they're great. And there's probably more coming up, too, uh, once I update. So that's awesome. And what about you, James? Do you have any kind of upcoming projects or places people can find you that you'd like to add? Uh, best place to find me is postmortemstudios.wordpress.com. That's kind of my main hub of stuff at the moment. Um, I write games, I write fiction, I dabble in erotica, um, that sort of thing. The main thing I've got going on at the moment is um, I run a scholarship in memoriam of a, of a dead friend who did a lot of art for me. So I'm trying to raise money to 
give this scholarship to young artists who often, you know, science fiction fantasy artists who often have a hard time um, in college and university being taken seriously or, you know, and doing art, it's um, lots of people see that as throwing money away. So any little thing you can do to, to help people is good. So I've been raising money for a scholarship on that. At the moment, it's about only, only about $700, but, you know, that's a lot of ramen noodles. So <laughs> you can find information about that on my site. If anyone wants to wants to donate, there's about a week left on the fundraiser. And if anyone knows any young artists who are in you know, high school, college, university, or are in reduced circumstances like long-term unemployed or disabled, these are all people who are eligible to apply. And I haven't had any applications yet, so I'm quite desperate for this year's one to, to find some people. You'd think giving money away, you know, <laughs> they'd show up, but unfortunately they haven't. So if anyone knows any young artists or can just get the word out there for this last week of fundraising, I'd really, really appreciate it. All right, cool. I'll, uh, I'm going to like uh, mention my uh, project. I've got too many different projects, too many irons in the fire. I'm actually working on a book, but uh, if anybody wants to... Uh, uh, who's interested in physics and that sort of thing? I've got something called the uh, called steampunk physics. Uh, unfortunately, the the only thing I've got available really right this moment is a uh, uh, a collection of videos I did kind of overnight. Uh, it's uh, you can just look up steampunk physics. It's on YouTube, and uh, I've got a lot of other things like on uh, on Quora, etc. But I'll, I'll have a more cohesive, singular site for some uh, some interesting uh, physics stuff that's uh, part of my project. If uh, anybody's interested in that sort of thing. That sounds awesome. Thank you guys very much for joining me and for hanging on a whole hour and a half extra. Sorry, James, for like keeping you up all night. Um, I mean, that's what I do. Uh, so thank you so much, guys, for joining uh, me on the show, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and we will see you guys uh, next month.